we don't predict what's coming. We show what's there, and what comes up will usually give you an indication about changing times. Wait a minute, I forgot my introduction. We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and Abe is unfortunately not here. He has uh, some work to get covered uh, today. But Out Now is a film podcast where Abe and I normally discuss new movies weekly. However, every now and then, we like to have these special bonus episodes, whether it's one of our fun commentary tracks or something completely different. And this is something completely different. This is in that category this week because we are doing our 2000... Our, tw- 2000, our 2021 Sundance Film Festival episode. Every year on this show, for a good number of years now, we like to kind of do a recap of the Sundance Film Festival because we have a lot of fun guests, and many of them get to attend these film festivals. Uh, this year's a little bit different because there was a festival held virtually, but that did not stop us from getting a couple of guests to talk about the Sundance Film Festival, and that's what we're going to do here today. So joining me to discuss the 2021 Sundance Film Festival we have from firstshowing.net, Instead of skiing the slopes, he was baking some bread in his home. It's Alex Billington. <laughs> Hello. Oh, Aaron, I love your interest. <laughs> <laughs> also joining us for Battleship Retention, rather than march through the snow, he gently walked to his couch. It's David Bax. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> I, I was happy with those. Uh, how are you guys doing today? <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm doing, doing, doing very well, as we were talking about off mic. It is an absolutely gorgeous day. <laughs> In Los Angeles. <laughs> it is. It's really nice outside. It is a terribly snowy and cold day here in Berlin, but I'm also enjoying my day. <laughs> as long as we're all enjoying the life, guys, that's that's what matters here. And uh, I, I'm I'm happy you guys are, because I'm, I'm happy you guys are here to be with me, here to talk about uh, movies, because that's what we do on the show, but especially when it comes to new and fresh movies, that should be exciting for a variety of reasons. But before we get to all that, let's go over some quick show notes uh, first up, commentary tracks. We do them every month. They're super fun. They're super informative. And uh, for the first five months of this year, we're going to be going over the various Hannibal Lecter films. So January, you had the Manhunter commentary track, which is super uh, entertaining to get into. And this week, we are recording our next one for Silence of the Lambs. Actually, on the, uh, I believe, the it's the 30th anniversary of Silence of the Lambs, but I believe that the day we're recording this is the 20th anniversary of Hannibal. Uh, so get ready, because we're going to have a lot of fun talking about that film, and that's going to be up on iTunes, where you can find all of our shows. Speaking of which, iTunes reviews and ratings, good to get those, helps out our show, helps people find our show. If you want to log on to iTunes, search for Out Now with Aaron and Abe, you'll find a bevy of amazing episodes, and, and some other ones, mostly amazing ones. I think they're all pretty good. Uh, but, but regardless, you can give us a rating or review, that'd be great, so thank you in advance. That was a weird way to promote the show. Uh, but alright, let's, um, <laughs> let's get into it. That's really all that's we got going this week we're just gonna be talking about the sundance film festival so with that said i have alex and david here you guys have been going to the sundance festival for a few years now if i'm not mistaken do you want to before we get into like how this year was different can you give me a recap of like how many years in a row you guys have gone alex how about you yeah. sorry you okay um yeah this is my 15th year um sundance was the very first festival i ever went to in 2007 and i've been going ever since then uh, mostly because my family also lives in salt lake city so I can easily go hang with them and then go to the festival in Park City. And um, yeah, I'm I'm. It was the first time in 15 years I haven't been in Park City at this time of year. So it was a like, you get that feeling from your like even from my body is just used to like trudging through the snow and it was just different to not be there. But um, uh, and I said this online already. This is the first time since last year that I felt like I've actually quote unquote attended a festival 
in that they put on such a good festival that it made me feel a lot like my years past having been there. I mean, without everything physical, but like with the rest of the festival experience. You know, things change. (laughs) (laughs) I know. This would have been, I guess this is my sixth Sundance. It would have been my sixth time uh, in Park City. 2016 was my first year. Um, And I will, I, I, I will agree with Alex that I think they did a great job. Uh, uh, of this and in, in, in terms of yeah. um, having like intros and Q and A's and stuff that made it, that, that gave it kind of a festival feel, although I have one gripe with the Q and A's, but uh, we'll say that for later. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I just think the, um, the platform, like the, whatever, you know, the, um, the, the, the screening worked, the work screenings worked really well. I, um, yeah, yeah. they, uh, I don't know if it was just, I don't want to, name any other festivals but last fall there was a different one that i had a little bit of trouble uh with image quality and and stuff like that uh with and here i it was uh really great everything looked great and played uh smoothly i but but i also say that i i i i've just spent a lot of time during the festival and since in, in the week or so since um just really mourning uh being in park city and and thinking about um you know, I saw uh, almost I liked almost every movie I, I saw, but um, I was thinking about that. There's this term that people use at film festivals called the festival glow that a movie, because it's seen the celebratory atmosphere of a festival, people tend to overpraise uh, movies that premiere at festivals. And I think that's especially true in Sundance, I think, because it's so like cold and snowy outside and everyone's sort of like huddled together in the warmth of the you know the the projected image on the screen and stuff and 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 we're all like away at winter camp together um it it, it, sometimes movies are way overpraised at at sundance and so i feel like i was more even in my uh in the way that i judged the films that i saw at sundance but i did kind of miss that that camp feeling that that glow you know i miss uh, as I said, uh, people, if anyone listens to my podcast, you'll hear me make this same point. Um, there's something to be said for waiting outside, like in a poorly heated tent for 45 minutes, <laughs> then trudging up three flights of wet, snowy stairs to get to the library in Park City where it's suddenly too hot, you're too cramped, and there's maybe five seats with good eyelines in the entire theater and yet somehow that all makes it more special to see movies uh, in, in, in a situation like like the library which is my both my favorite and least favorite screening room at Sundance um, and uh, I, I just found myself missing some of that experience but I also understand that the take the, the the upshot here is that more people got to experience Sundance this year and so I am willing to ultimately sacrifice um what i understand is a privileged position on my part part that i'm able to afford to go to sundance uh, every year uh, in exchange for more people being able to see and talk about these movies yeah i, I agree with him a lot in that like i miss that experience and I'm, I'm glad it can open up more but i the, the other thing i really miss is the buzz of it like the to me the thing that's great about festivals is when you're in the queues and and in the buses and waiting and you have that conversation with some random person next to you or a friend or a colleague or whatever, and you learn about it. And then you're like, I got to fit this film into my schedule in a few days. And part of the problem with virtual festivals is now they've made everything like you have to watch it within 24 hours and then the screening window is closed. So you kind of lose that ability to like have the conversations, hear the buzz, hear what's good and bad. And like, while I did do a good job this year trying to sort of craft myself around what I had heard was really worth it. 
I still kind of miss that like physical experience of of being in the moment also allows these conversations to sort of flow in a way that it's hard to do virtually. Um, and I just kind of miss that too. I really miss the the sense of like, every festival has the same sort of quality of you get out and you just chat with the person who just saw it next to you and, and you just kind of like talk about everything. And um, it's just not the same online. I, yeah, you're reminding me of uh, 2017. I did not have a ticket. I did not uh, reserve a ticket for Call Me By Your Name. But mm-hmm. by the end of my like five days there, my, you know, uh, it was clear, oh, I need to see this movie. Everyone is talking about this movie. And I'm like sort of rearranging my schedule and cramming in a press and industry screening, you know, the morning before I had to head to the airport. Um, and it was pouring snow. I walked into the press and industry screening room, the Yarrow, um, looking like Jack Nicholson at the end of The Shining, just like <laughs> covered in snow. But I fit in Call Me By Your Name, and and uh, it was so worth it. And yeah, th- th- there's none of that uh, uh, this year. There's there's none of that picking up on like, oh, I guess I need to cram uh, this one in, or you know, rearrange my schedule, or, or or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's sort of the it's like the trade-off between online and not online. It's like like you're saying, David, that you get more people, more coverage, more attention, but you you sort of feel more disconnected. And and the weird thing is that all the festivals like try to do something. Like there was this big VR room at Sundance. I don't know if either of you guys used it, but like they always try to do something to replicate that. And it's like I just want to remind them like there's no way you can ever replicate in-person experiences and conversations in that moment. Yeah. And even queuing. Queuing is always like an important part of festivals in that I hate it, but I love that you have that like 60 minutes of queue time to chat and, ha- and like yeah. be forced to stand next to someone and, and and either ignore them or listen to them. And there's something about that that you just cannot – there's no way you can ever replicate this in any other way online and they always try to and i'm always like yeah but it's just not ever gonna happen yeah. i mean i'm trying to think about this in my head it's like how you can do that it's like i guess you can create like zoom chat rooms or something of like people waiting for 20 minutes while they yeah but they, for, like, they Sunday has literally had the wait rooms where it was a chat room and i didn't even participate in them because i was never i never had like the 15 minutes of time i was just like straight <laughs> up watching but yeah i mean it's a give and take as far as that's we're coming down to as far as well yeah everybody gets to see this thing but yeah you lack a certain communal experience um from my perspective i have not attended sundance before and my film festival experience is fairly limited in general i've gone to uh the newport beach film festival of course but also the san diego film festival and the afi afi fest uh, but you know this past year because of you know you know the, the virtual means of doing things i was able to you know watch some stuff at tiff and new york film festival among other things so like doing this and even doing this is more of i was able to get access to a few things as opposed to I, I didn't have a pass for sundance but as far as the viewing experience goes i agree with david as far as the quality of everything like everything seemed to you know open up the way it needed to and the video quality was quite strong and what have you so like i can't faulted as far as a if we have to do it this way at least it's going to look a certain way like that aspect of it played well enough as far as the kind of like yeah that certain sort of buzz you get from seeing a movie with a huge audience for the first time and like what's it going to be like i can understand that you know being lacking in a certain way there's certainly movies that got some buzz as far as like twitter discourse or what have you as far as things that were popular things that won out at the end or whatever but yeah it's i can imagine it being a different sort of experience um with that said i guess it, uh, i definitely yeah. this year reminding me of because i wasn't tweeting about movies the way that i do at sundance um when i'm at like at sundance um and i think just because of that the delayed windows and stuff like it doesn't feel like everyone's getting out of the movie at the same time and mm-hmm. so it uh, uh i didn't feel that 
that rush. But you reminded me of a story. And Alex, I don't know if you remember this or maybe if I'm just making this up in my head. But I remember at Sundance, Uh-oh. I'm guessing 2018, there's a movie called I Think We're Alone Now that I didn't like. And I tweeted about it and I specifically remember that I used the term half-baked. And then you tweeted something later. I think you were subtweeting me because you tweeted something later positively about the film and like specifically like refuted the idea that the movie was half baked. And I was like, I think Alex just sub, I think Alex just subtweeted me about, it. I think Ooh. we're alone now. Ooh, that's a good, I don't even remember. Cause I, I, I was like, I think we're alone now. I had to check this one, but I don't, that's good. I don't know. <laughs> you remember that movie though, right? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. I think it was like opening night. Wasn't it? One of the, one of the early ones with, um, I don't remember. Yeah. Half-baked. But I know it was it was uh, we're getting way off topic now. But That's that right. was um, I think that was the first movie that ever played at Sundance in uh, Dolby Atmos. Oh right, um, right, right, right. If that if I'm remembering correctly, because they fit it out. It's hilarious to me that there's a like a, a high school auditorium in the middle of Utah that's fitted out with Dolby Atmos <laughs> speakers. But I think it was for I think we're alone now was the first movie they um, presented that way. I do. This always makes me want to say that I do come across differently on twitter i think we all do than than in person and i like everyone's interpretation of everything i mean that I mean, that's the nature of twitter is that you're like writing some characters into a text box and they, it doesn't truly reflect you know everything else the mood and the moment and the atmosphere and what your intention is and your tone and all of this and it's like yeah okay <laughs> and it's funny it's funny to talk about this because i'm like wow that's it probably was a subtweet, and you're probably right. And I just—I don't even remember it now. I'm sorry, David. I didn't mean to no, offend no, you. No, I, I, uh, uh, I liked knowing that you were out there reading my tweets. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other thing is that um, there's now not we keep going on this topic, but the the there's this like trend in Twitter now to like shelter yourself and and sort of um, block and mute everyone you don't like. And actually, one of the things I do is I actually like reading a lot of people I disagree with because I just want to like not only know what they have to say, but also just like follow what their whole point is. There's a difference between disagreeing and people you don't like though. No, no, no. I know. I know. But like part of my thing is like people I, I should be clicking block on. I'm actually like, Hey, I want to follow you. And then they, they'll block me and not let me follow them. But like, I want to, I, am just like straight up curious because I want to know. And especially at like festivals, I want to read everyone's opinion. Even if I like love a film that people hate or vice versa, I'm still like, hey, I want to know why and what your thought is and what your perspective is. I remember one of the the biggest ones was, um, uh, what was the Shane Carruth? Uh, we shouldn't mention his name anymore, but what was the Shane Carruth film, um, his second one that was the Sundance like five or six years ago? Upstream Color? Upstream Color. Yes, yes. So I remember that moment that ended, I was like, I didn't understand that. <laughs> and I literally turned to all the people next to me and was like, can you help explain it to me? And it was like it was a vulnerable admission where I was like, I, like straight up, I, I couldn't even judge the film because I was like, you know, I wanted to sit down and watch it a second time, but we're in the middle of Sundance. And one of the things that really was important to me was being able to immediately like read and hear other people's opinions on it and like kind of make sense of it and be like, oh, now I get it. Now I'm putting it together. And I really like doing that, especially if I hate something. I'm like, it helps me understand, A, why I hated it, but also B, what the other perspectives are. And like, what, like maybe I missed something or maybe there's something that I just didn't get about it. You know, and I want to know. Yeah. That's my safe my safe way of uh, <laughs> covering my ass for some tweeting you. <laughs> to be fair, Alex, I mean, you're worse in real life. So, I mean, if anything, you're tweeting. I know, and I know. Don't ever <laughs> cross my way. Um, Throw right. popcorn from across the theater. That would show me. Um, so, <laughs> let's uh, let's get into the kind of the film festival of this year. And I guess 
the way to go over this would just be go over some some highlights, some of the things that we saw that you know we want to say something about whether it's you know nothing but admiration or uh we're not a fan of it either way but um that's kind of i want to hand it over to you guys and i'll you know obviously i've seen i've seen some films as well but like let's, oh, what hey, did you see and what did you see I, I saw some stuff well okay i'll start then since i haven't been talking as much um i I'll, I'll start with what my favorite thing was because that's just that's just easy to get out of the way it is the documentary summer of soul uh, or huh. the, what is the full title? Or the revolution will not be televised. Is that what it? What is it? Um, I think it will be televised. <laughs> will it be televised? Um, well, now it will be televised. <laughs> well, it will be on on Hulu this fall or something like that, right? But um, this is the, the directorial debut of Questlove from the Roots Crew. Um, it's when the revolution could not be televised. There it is. Yeah, uh, I, I thought it was a not. I was pretty sure it was a not because it was. It's interesting and it goes into what this movie's about. Uh, yeah. The film revolves around the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. Um, it is this music festival that took place around the same time as Woodstock. Uh, literally, one of the days was on the day that we landed on the moon, and over 300,000 people attended this thing, and it was filmed, and yet. It just kind of faded into history, like no, like it literally. Like the the footage of this was found in a basement, and Questlove was able to get his hands on this footage and edit it into this wonderful documentary, where it has a lot of footage of great performances from a number of amazing R&B and soul artists from back then, including Stevie Wonder and Gladys Knight and the Pips and uh, a ton. Of, there's so many. Uh, <laughs> Sly and the Family Stone. I'm seeing Mahalia Jackson mm-hmm. on here. Uh, Nina, Nina, Nina Simone. Um, but it, it's a mix of that footage along with um, some contextual understanding of what the times were like for specifically for black people in America. Um, and you have a number of talking heads as well for people that attended this festival as well as other uh, celebrities and some of the some of the artists actually like Gladys Knight appears. Uh, among others uh, so it's what i what i found fast like for one thing this is the kind of document that's complete, entirely up my alley i as a weird tangent i am a huge fan of michelle gondry's dave Chappelle's block party that is one of my favorite <laughs> movies and probably maybe the documentary i've watched the most in my life because it's very <laughs> enjoyable but all the, and beyond just the fact that it's like it has Chappelle and it has like a bunch of hip-hop artists i really enjoy it just has a certain kind of purity to it uh, as far as watching people that are at this free concert because Dave Chappelle decided, I have a bunch of money now, I'm going to throw this thing in New York because why not? Uh, and it somehow that movie captures that energy really well. This does that incredibly well because it's from another time uh, that we just don't really see hear about all that often. And we get a whole bunch of context and perspective and these performances. And it's just it's it's almost two hours. I could easily watch this for another two hours as far as just seeing this kind of footage. And I've seen a number of like the like the Woodstock docket. Like I've seen that, which is quite long. Like this is like watching that kind of thing, but just with a different sort of context to it. And I just I really enjoyed it. Did, did either of you guys see it, David and Alex? Did you see Summer of Soul? No. Yeah, I did. I did. I agree with you. And I I felt like it had um, the 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 soul and the like face melting brilliance of Amazing Grace, the, the Aretha Franklin lost doc. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with what I also really loved about it is with the historical context. Like it wasn't just it was the first thing I I, I needed in a, in a concert film is to like let the performances play, especially if, if it's like 50 year old footage that has never been seen. Uh-huh. Like just let the performances play, which it did. And then it gives you this historical context in this like fun, 
but not boring way. And I was like, Questlove just freaking nailed it, man. Like, he knew what he was doing in both realms, and it was so great to see. I, I just felt it so much, and I just enjoyed it so much. Like you said, it's just like, it is the kind of thing that I think people will just go back and watch and mm-hmm. just, like, have a good time with. Yeah. And, I mean, especially with Questlove, you know, he's he is a musician. He really mm-hmm. knows how to let the performances go for a certain length because yeah. you just inherently know that's going to be fun to watch or that's going to mean something to somebody. Watching Stevie Wonder have this extended drum solo, it's like, yeah, why would I not want to see all of that as opposed to just a clip of it before someone else talks about it? But then the talking heads are really good. Like, yeah. I can go either way depending on how a documentary employs talking heads, but the ones that they, the, the way he's chosen them and how they incorporate into the film, they really make a difference because, for one thing, it's a lot of the attendees from the festival. And so it hits harder because you're watching people that basically just have a vague memory of this thing that they went to once and they're getting a chance to actually like you get to see that they're watching screens of this footage at the same time so like you're really you're actually seeing them respond genuinely to like stuff they haven't like thought about for years i'd imagine and so it's just it's i found it to be just really fascinating and really entertaining uh so like that that easily stuck out for me as like my favorite thing that i watched as part of the festival yeah the other part you mentioned that i I also really loved too was the the moon landing day because they started Mm -hmm. interviewing people and i knew it was going to happen because i think i think apollo 11 had a a couple scenes about this too or or one of the other films where they like they the 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 black crowds at the time and Mm -hmm. and like half of america was just like we don't give a shit about the moon landing you know they're just like we have like this is so dumb. Why are you wasting money on this? And of course, history has proven to it to be legendary. And I, and I thought that brief moment in the dock was almost like a way of saying both of these moments are legendary, but this meant more to this community, and that's what's important in this particular context. Which I mm-hmm. thought was a really cool way of like it wasn't just like oh the moon landing was today and they here's here's the concert from today. It, like added this element to it on that day that really like gave me a whole a whole perspective that I while I'm familiar with from other films like cleared in my mind in a really stunning way and i was it was so cool that he has those little bits in it i think that's why it is is like it won the audience award and everything is it stands out more than just like a simple doc yeah it's it's more than just this thing happened and here it is it's a this is this is what it meant in america at this time and i think that's a a huge plus there's plenty of other movies to talk about so i want to keep going on summer of soul but i really like summer of soul and i'm very glad that it got picked up by what searchlight and hulu so it's going to be able to be i didn't think it wouldn't be able to be seen but you know it's nice to know that news already uh david let's go to you something you have seen what was something that stuck out for you uh i guess i'll stick since you said your favorite i'll talk about my favorite which is also a documentary and that's theo anthony's all light everywhere which is uh did either of you see it did not yeah, no. I did. yeah? I, this is this is actually one of them i saw on my last day because people were talking about it but so yeah go on, it, go on. <laughs> um it, the the documentary i guess it's uh if you were to talk about it, its overview is it's about i guess cameras in a sense and tearing apart the idea that they're uh objective observers so you know the, there's the axiom that the camera doesn't lie and cameras are used for fact gathering and surveillance and all of these things but uh the movie repeatedly makes the point that the person operating the camera in the case of body worn cameras by police which is a huge percentage of the film's runtime um the people person wearing the camera is in essence part of the camera and so there's no way to to uh uh capture an image without the the person capturing the image having some effect on what that image uh is but that sounds very straightforward this is more of a experiential sort of rumination on 
on uh, on on what we see and what we believe because of what we see. There's there's really interesting uh, uh, touches in the movie that uh, like there's parts there's parts where like a traditional documentary it's narrated, but then there's also parts where there's just subtitles instead of narration saying what's going on. Where you don't normally have narration, it's just subtitles. And I feel like maybe I'm this is me speculating, but I feel like Theo Anthony is sort of forcing you to look at a certain part of the screen sort of making his own point he's directing uh what what you're seeing um by by like uh having a full screen of image but the bottom third is the one the only part of it that you're looking at because he's forcing you to read these these subtitles uh there's there's all sorts of uh um uh, interesting sort of like some of it is very sobering but some of it is kind of funny um uh stuff at the same time there's <laughs> There, there's a a, a a motif in the movie of sort of camera uh, as a form of weaponry almost or a tool of war yeah. Uh, yeah. where you've got like we've got like pigeons strapped with cameras to do like wartime reconnaissance during World War One or whatever. But then you've also got a thing called the photographic rifle, which is yeah, exactly was... <laughs> it looks like a rifle, but you point it at a thing and you hold down the trigger and it takes a series. It sort of is a movies before there were movies it takes a series of uh photos in a row but you see people like uh uh carrying these things and it literally looks like they're just pointing rifles at uh, at, at things um yeah the 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 movie i think uh it almost feels like whenever i try to tell people what it's about it feels like i'm diminishing what the movie is by putting it into the box of it covers this it does but it's really more of a like i said more of an experience than than a you know, a PowerPoint presentation or a, or a lecture. Yeah. That's exactly why I didn't watch it at first. I was like, Oh, body cam film, <laughs> you know? And then everyone was like, you gotta see, you gotta see it. And then you watch it and you're right. It's, you cannot describe what it is. And I think that's the, the great thing about it is like pulls you into it and gives you so much to think about. The the thing that it really hit me is that when I go to festivals, I always love being like changed by a film because they're mm. always the most deeply moving and kind of um, uh, intellectual films come from festivals and this is the like one of three at Sundance this year, meaning not a lot that I saw that really like changed my mind completely in two ways. Number one, I will never look at body cam cameras again because this film basically concludes by saying they are completely biased or at least the ones built by this company. And then number two is just the way cameras develop as as you pointed out, David, like as this violent instrument and as this sort of weapon. And then, like, you're, I had no idea. I just had, you know, like, both of these things have made me completely rethink just the way cameras work. And that, and the, and I mean, it is very, there is the passage in it which is very blatantly showing you how biased the police cameras are and, and what this whole system is. Like, it's not, it's not an ambiguous or open minded thing where it's like, you make your own conclusion. It's like, no, clearly this is biased. And it's not, it's not the, it's not the fact gathering, you know, sort of system that they claim it is. And that really shook me. That really got to me in a way where I'm like, I know that's a point that they're trying to make, but it's also an undeniable point based on all the other evidence in the film that you're like, yeah, I get it now. And there's another film at another festival that also tried to do this, put you in the perspective of, um, the, the 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 quote unquote criminals you're following are you only ever see them through surveillance cameras, mm-hmm. and um, I was halfway through watching this, I was trying to figure out the point, and I think the point of this this is a, the other film, it's a, a narrative. The point was when you're viewing everyone through those kind of cameras, you feel a complete disconnect, and you feel like they're you, you don't get a full sense of who they are. 
in the way you would meeting them and getting to know them and spending time with them. And I think that that connects back to All Light Everywhere and that it's a film that reminds us that cameras, despite the, the belief that they're pure and open and unbiased, do have a level of bias to them. And now I cannot go forward and not think of <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, as, as someone, people like me who advocate for increased police accountability and stuff like that tend to be pro, in favor of body-worn cameras. But after yeah. watching this movie, like you're saying, you see, because you sit in for a huge part of the movie is you sit in on a uh, the police go undergoing their body-worn camera training. And all you see is how it that they can use it to sort of cover their own asses, that it, that it yeah. does more to protect them. Uh, it all. It, I forgot to mention the the quote that's in the movie that I, uh, I I think I've got it down, but I'm paraphrasing. It's something like, "The eye only sees that for which it looks, and it only looks for that which it has been taught to expect." Um, mm. And I think that's uh, the way that Theo Anthony sort of sums up uh, uh, what he's what he's trying to get at in in the movie. Yeah, I, I mean, I love a good film that really makes you think and really like. Again, despite the. That was the interesting thing is it, it it is so clearly designed to have his perspective in it. And I, I would love to hear interviews with him where he kind of explains like how he reached that goal and his point to that. Like, like where did the film begin? Was it, oh, I want to talk about photography and cameras or was it, oh, now I know this about body cams and I want to present this story about body cams in this package about photography. That's kind of what I'm curious about. I don't know if you've read anything from him. No, I haven't. I I wouldn't be surprised if there's something out there that exists, given that there's the Q and A after the festival or whatnot. But yeah, obviously, just yeah, yeah. a chance to see anything like that at this point. But that is a question I generally wonder about a lot of documentaries, as far as what was the initial idea before they crafted a narrative around it, because that's yeah, I, t I tend to find that pretty fascinating. <laughs> um, but we got to move on because there's a lot of movies. Um, that does sound interesting though. All light everywhere. Uh, Alex, what's the thing you want to jump to? Well, following the trend, I'll go with my favorite too. Um, an obvious one, Coda, the uh, deaf film, um, which I just, it was opening night, uh, my first film through the Sundance system. And I just, it, it felt like, like I could feel the cheers and buzz of the people around me in Eccles in the big auditorium, like <laughs> laughing and participating. And it was, um, it was just like a moving experience to watch it that way. Even though there were, you know, I'm just sitting alone in my apartment on my couch. Um, but it really, I felt like this film, and, and the funny thing is that uh, after writing about it, we all now have to acknowledge that it is actually a remake of a French film from 2014 that I haven't seen yet, and I know a couple of my European friends have. But watching it, my first thought, and the reason I mentioned this is watching my first thought was, oh, we've never seen anything like this. And then people are like, oh, it's a remake. And it's like, yeah, yeah, okay. And, and, and I say that the people who have seen the original film have told me that it's like, nowhere near as good as this one so i ha i'm taking that from their word but um what i really love about coda is the way it um handles deaf humor and i i what i mean when watching it was that i had never seen jokes that combine not only sign language but speaking and the way they the, the the sign language performances enhance those jokes and how not only can you sign jokes but you can make jokes through sign with a hearing person and how that works was so beautifully crafted in the film and the performances speak so tenderly about how they capture that experience being a deaf family because it's about a deaf family and one hearing daughter in the family who can um who wants to sing which is like it's so it's so cliche in that way like of course you know and the, the, the other great thing about the film is that it makes fun of that cliche-ness like the first scene with her uh, her singing teacher was like oh a deaf 
family and you're the child who loves to sing how obvious is that you know but that's <laughs> it embraces that and then it like leans into the charm and the fun and just the, the joy of it and i really think it sets a new bar especially with sound of metal too for deaf cinema in terms of not only what's possible but just like how much beauty there is in these stories and, and how much we can tell like it just like one of the things I love, and it was the same in Sound of Metal too, is how some of the most um, impactful and emotional scenes are just completely silent to hearing people. And you're just watching the scene that's completely silent. It's her and her mom signing back and forth. And you're like moved to tears. And as a hearing person, that's what strikes me is the, the silence of it. And yet that's the, it's like that's the beauty of reminding you of the, the differences in the world is that we don't need to speak to have the ability to communicate effectively this way. And you could make the same case for um blind or any other loss of sense as well and that's just like i don't know it just really stuck with me in that way <laughs> sorry i yeah. i just love the film so i'm like i'll talk about it as much as i can in a good way yeah i i really liked coda as well it reminded you you mentioned um you could picture yourself at, at the Eccles. it reminded me of a theater a movie that i actually saw at the mark another another uh screening room at, at sundance uh a couple of years back and that's blinded by the light um, mm-hmm. In terms of a movie that is very warm, very, in a way, almost formulaic, but told with such honesty and compassion, it's also very funny, and it's a tearjerker. That that, that experience that I had watching Blinded by the Light at 8.30 in the morning and laughing and crying with an entire room full of uh, strangers, um, I yeah, I definitely missed missed that uh, on this and, and probably I'm sure, certain would have enjoyed seeing Coda uh, in a similar setting. I watched it's, it. it's very funny. I watched it too and I, I very much enjoyed it as well and I feel like, Alex, what you're pointing out and David, what you have too, to an extent, it, the idea of what makes a film formulaic or what's a cliche or whatnot, like that only that only applies in a negative way when you're watching a film that's not, you know, enhancing any of these things or doing anything interesting with them. I mean, what works about Coda is the fact that, yes, it is taking on a story that is familiar, um, but doing it in a way that's entirely unique to itself because it involves these characters and these performances and this, you know, style of direction and handling the sign language versus the hearing characters, what have you, like all of that stuff works in its favor. Uh, So like, yeah, when you have the, when you have like the teacher pointing out the fact that it seems so obvious, like, that's funny. Like it, it works to yeah. its advantage. The, like the film's self-aware, even though it's not winking at the camera at you. But everything's so everything's so winning about this movie, uh, specifically the cast. Uh, and I really, I did really like the father, uh, Troy Kotsur, oh, the yeah. actor. Oh yeah. Who plays Frank. Like he, there's. I mean, the fact that the film's funny is, or you know, it's humorous at times. In addition to being dramatic, the fact that it is able to incorporate those elements really well is great. But I, I love the fact that the father does have this dramatic weight on his shoulder as far as, you know, having to wrestle with what he's, you know, being able to do for his family. At the same time, he's also really hilarious at times. Like the, and Alex, you pointed out, the use of sign language and how he uses it specifically is really funny. There's, especially because he has to have his daughter serve as as a translator and he knows what he's doing. Like it's, it's very clear that he knows he knows the awkward situation he's sometimes purposely putting in, her into because it's just funny to him. Like so, there's in addition to like the other stuff that comes on, there's just a lot of good here. It was also neat that the uh, the lead of uh, Sing Street was the like the boy in this movie. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah. He's very he, he's he's trying to do an English accent. That's nice and, for him. Um, <laughs> speaking of the the cast, I'll point out uh, Eugenio Derbez who plays the uh, the 
teacher. choir teacher. He's a, an incredibly talented uh, actor and performer who just has a, a track record of being in very bad movies. Yeah. Uh, you know, a couple of Adam Sandler movies and the the Overboard remake uh, and, and 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 stuff like that. Um, but I've always liked him on on screen, and I'm glad that uh, uh, he's gotten this role. He's a huge star in Mexico yeah. I, I mm. as well. Like he, like he, he's been doing his time as far as like becoming like a huge performer and yeah like seeing him in this and something that could actually break him out a little bigger as a far as be, it's not like he needs the help like he's yeah. been very <laughs> successful like it's right. not, but at the same time as far as like endearing him more to an american audience good 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 good, good he gets to pop up in something like this um I don't, I don't know what else we could expand on with coda i think like the movie what it had a, a record-breaking sale to um to apple for 25 yeah. million uh, to beat out what Palm Springs is, what is it, something million and sixty nine cents? Like twenty or something. Twenty yeah. and sixty nine cents, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, make sure to add that sixty nine cents. Um, but, <laughs> but um, no, I mean, well, I do, it, I do want to point out that the, mm-hmm. the uh, people told me that the original French film doesn't use actual deaf actors, and this film does. And per the points everyone just made, I think that's where that's the huge difference in between these films. I think that makes like their understanding of how to give that performance and what they need to do comes from an authentically deaf person giving a, a, an authentically deaf performance. It makes so much of a difference. It's not, the same with sound of metal too. But. Not, not that I need a movie to justify why it gets made, whether it's a remake or not, but I do feel like having that, I, that, that you pointed out right there, that does give me something in my mind to think, Oh, that is a good reason to actually do this movie again by using people that actually apply to the thing that they're being, you know, that, that revolves around the film. That works for me, I guess. This is the best way I can see it. Yeah. Like, right, good. Yeah. What's next? I, I guess I'll just go over another thing that I saw. Uh, I watched um, uh, Gerard Carmichael's On the Count of Three, uh, his directorial debut, which he also stars in, along with... Uh, uh, Christopher Abbott. Christopher, a- I was like, oh. it's not. Yeah, it, it, there's there's like a tr- there's like a trio of those act like Bra- uh, Bra- Bradley Grady Corbett. That's the other one. I was like, it's not him. Let's say Christopher Abbott. Uh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, this is uh, Gerard Carmichael's uh, directorial debut. It stars him and Christopher Abbott. Uh, they are two guys who want to commit suicide, uh, double suicide, I guess is the best way to put it. And it's a buddy comedy. Um, it, it, it opens up these two guys pointing guns at each other. And then we backtrack and see why they're doing that. Essentially, Christopher Abbott's character has had a troubled life, and he's currently in a institution because he previously tried to attempt suicide. Meanwhile, Gerard Carmichael is fed up with life and figures maybe suicide's my best option. And the two proceed, the two basically meet up uh, get one out of the institution and spend the day acting as if it's their last and that they can do anything they want to because, hey, we're going to commit suicide at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what happens. Uh, and a hilarity ensues, obviously. Alex, did you see this film also? Yeah, I did. I did, yeah. Uh, I, um, I Overall, I like this movie. Um, mm-hmm. I do think it, it feels like... Th- there's just there's a lot there for me to like and i feel like it could have just enough more to make it a little bit better like i, yeah, I feel I like I it's, it's just a little bit off from being like a great movie because i think there's there's a lot there as far as what it's trying to do and what it's trying to say about like men uh like mental Ill, mental illness and and obviously suicide and what have you like there's yeah, there's deep in front and friendship yeah, male bonding and what have you and there's there's a lot of there's a lot of good topics for discussion in there, and there's a strong cast here too. I mean, I think Carmichael and I think Chris Rabbit is very talented. I've seen him in a lot of things late, like last year alone. He had a number of great things. 
uh, Black Bear and a Possessor, among others. Um, but like the the, uh, the cast also has Tiffany Haddish, J.B. Smooth, and uh, Lavelle Crawford, who plays uh, he's in he's in Breaking Bad uh, as um, what's his name Huel. He's Huel yeah. in Breaking Bad. And, so and it's, Better Call Saul. And yeah. Better yeah, and Better Call Saul. Uh, and uh, there's another actor I won't mention him because it's just a fun surprise. Uh, but yeah. um, but uh, no, I. Uh, I did enjoy this one. I do think it could have, it just could have gone a little bit deeper on what it's talking about. But Alex, you basically agree? Yeah, I um yes, because it's the moment I figured out the concept, which is that it's literally just like two suicidal people trying to not kill each other, but also trying to kill each other. It was like one of these like, how are they going to do this, and how do you make a film about this like for ninety minutes? Um, and I and I and I agree with you. It wasn't as crazy as I wanted it to be. It kind of like. It, it, but the other thing is that I was watching it, and I'm like, this isn't my favorite, but I know why certain people are going to love it. And I don't want to, like, you know, dig too deep into it. But a lot of stuff where it's like, if you are on their same wavelength mentally, you're going to lose your shit for this film. And I know a couple of people I follow who are like, this is their favorite film of the festival, because that that sort of, like, super nihilistic, suicidal, dark humor really connected deeply with them. And um, the best I, thing was that someone, yeah. I don't want to minimize this too much, but I do feel like it feels like a Sundance movie is a really good way yeah, to describe yeah. it. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. <laughs> and the the thing that someone said, and this isn't my comment, but the moment they said it, I was like, that nails is, it, is that it was, uh, they said it was basically about two best friends who are so hopelessly like depressed on their own that they're that the only way they can live is if each other is saving the other person and i thought that was a really beautiful way of explaining their friendship like oh wow that's that's what the real core of this film is that they're both suicidal but the only way they prevent themselves from dying is by saving each other constantly throughout the film and that's kind of like a lot of what it is and it really that's the like beating heart to it that keeps it um from being like like it could have gone so nihilistic that i would have just been annoyed by it and it doesn't and i like that i like that it stays afloat uh in that way and keeps it going and and even though it's like not my favorite i actually every time someone loves it i'm like you know hell yes like like i want to like your thoughts and comments on this are part of what makes a a film thrive even if it's not my favorite thing i I will also i mean i've already mentioned i think christopher rabbit's very good and he's like it's weird to say the comic relief in a movie about but a comedy about suicide but he is like the more outgoing character as far as like he, he gets the flashier role. I do think Gerard Carmichael is really good, and I, re- I I like what he's trying to explore because I don't know if you ever guys watched the uh, the Gerard Carmichael the Carmichael show, um, but that was a like that was like a standard sitcom, but that ta- it felt like it tackled things back that other older black sitcoms did tackled real issues in addition to being you know funny, and so it's seeing him now directing a movie. Um, which is also tackling issues, not necessarily issues related to like the black experience, but just like doing stuff like that for being a guy that's known for, you know, comedy and, and a fairly young guy, but known for like stand up comedy, seeing him apply himself to like actual issues and trying to make that funny. Like I could use more of that, honestly, like as far as like trying to make that work and uh, trying to find that balance. So, I, you know, I, even if this mm. film's not like the biggest success, I still you know, wish him the best because he's certainly trying. He's certainly putting some out there. So. Yeah, it's cool. It's it's a great example of something that is super original in its in its idea of like what he's trying to do with this film. It is it is cool in that way, and I I'm I'm glad that these films like again even if it's not my favorite thing, I'm glad that these kind of films exist and that they'll be out there for someone to enjoy and sort of latch onto. For sure. Um. So I just. I want to. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I want and, and David, maybe you haven't. I want to like. Is there any films you guys hated? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, for all the positive we talked about, my favorite thing at Sundance is when I'm like, "What did you think of the film?" And they're like, "I hated it." And I'm like, "Ooh, tell me more." Well, like, let's let's do, let's know. do let's do another let's do another cycle of things to highlight for is positive, and then we'll do well, okay. then we'll go through some some bad stuff because I have a couple. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I'll I'll go next with the pop. Um. Well, this is uh, just. So, uh, speaking of, as, as you said, you guys were talking about the last one. Speaking of something just being on the, someone just being on the right wavelength, or something being up the right person's alley. Uh, a movie that feels like it was made for me is uh, Christopher Makoto Yogi's "I Was a Simple Man," um, which is a very um, uh, meditative, almost surreal, dreamy uh, movie about uh, an elderly Hawaiian man who is dying and um, is in a way through his decreasing attachment to reality is he living more in these sort of uh, uh this netherworld between life and, and death he starts being visited by the ghosts of his family who mostly want nothing to do with him in real life or um or have 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 died um including uh his wife who died uh, in 1959 uh played both in flashbacks and as a present day ghost by Constance Wu um the movie it, it, if you've seen Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, mm-hmm. this it's a very similar structure. That's also about a man, uh, an elderly man dying and being visited by ghosts of his his, his family. Uh, this one takes on a more uh, allegorical aspect because we learn that um, uh, this this character uh, I've already forgotten the actor's name, but uh, or the character's name uh, as well. But this character's Myself. wife. Uh, yes, yeah, Masao. Um, his wife died the day of the parade celebrating Hawaiian statehood, and so it's clear, like, oh, this person, this character, Masao, represents the last generation of Hawaiians to have grown up and come of age pre-statehood, and and that 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 Hawaiian identity has sort of been uh, slowly disappearing um, and is uh, at, on the precipice of being gone. Uh, forever and so i think the movie is um about hawaii as a part of america and not a part of america at the same time um because of the, these people who have their uh you know still have their um past in the past um but the movie is just gorgeous um like i said it's dreamlike it's uh uh methodical and and lovely um i really really loved it did either of you see it i did not I did not, but I my girlfriend saw it and basically loved it the same same kind of comments as you. <laughs> so right. I, good taste then. Does it does it, <laughs> use, does it use Hawaii well? Uh, I get yeah. It, I mean, it's sort of like um, I mean, as far like when I say that, I mean outside of it's Hawaii, so it naturally looks good. Does it use it in a way where it's like, hey, there's other things beyond just the you know beaches and stuff in Hawaii? Yeah, I remember thinking about. I, I don't know if either of you saw um, the the movie from 2003 los angeles plays itself the documentary about uh, yeah, los yeah, angeles awesome. yeah. and yeah so tom anderson has a thing about like high tourism and low tourism and low tourism you know goes to like the cheesy tourist spots but high tourism like actually sort of um finds the character of the place that it, that the high tourist is visit and i thought about high tourism uh, a lot in in the idea that we're seeing you know we're seeing honolulu but not you know the honolulu that we uh, are normally presented with. We're not seeing hotels, and we see and and you know uh, beaches. Uh, really, we're we're seeing neighborhoods, um, and yet there's still this 
beautiful lush greenery that we think of as Hawaiian or that we think of as the island from Lost, which is also Hawaiian, but that's what it always reminds me of, um, uh, is still uh, right there. It's right in the backyard. You know, the guy takes his dog out for a for a walk. The dog is running through the this this beautiful dense verdant uh foliage um i forgot to mention the dog which is uh the uh, the dog like masao seems to be untethered in time the dog shows up both in the present day quote-unquote real scenes and in the memories and ghosts and flashbacks oh, and stuff like coco it's coco beats a christmas carol beats the father got it all right right <laughs> Yeah. All right. So that was I was a simple man. It's it's one of the films that I'm really excited about seeing at some point. Like it 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 um it wasn't on my list at first, and then by the end of the festival, I'm like, man, this sounds really like I don't want I want to see it now. (laughs) From everyone who had seen it, all kind of said these similar sort of like warm sentiments for it. I was like, this is uh, this is my favorite kind of thing. Like something that you don't expect much from, and then it kind of really wins you over in its in its own unique way. Is yeah. Some of my favorite festival films. And I believe it got nominated for the jury prize. Coda won the jury prize for drama, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I but isn't it, is this in like a uh, world drama or is this in. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, it's American, right? Because it's Hawaii. Yeah. But, um, is it? I mean, yeah. is it in English? <laughs> I hate that that's a defining factor, but is it? <laughs> you know what I was thinking? You know how in. Yeah, it's mostly in English. Um, but you know how in the in the small X series, the characters talk in like Patois and Steve McQueen, like doesn't subtitle it. There's, there's, there's a little bit of that where they're talking English, but the little bit of like pigeon English comes in here and there. And you just sort of, uh, the, uh, Christopher McCoy, the Yogi, the director just sort of trusts you to like, uh, if you don't understand pigeon English, which I don't, um, you know, understand from context, what's what's going on. You go along with the mood of the scene, as opposed to the rhythm of the dialogue. for it. I look forward to that MTV Movie Award for Best Regional Dialect Used Film. <laughs> see a lot of Cockney movies. Um, <laughs> uh, Alex, what's Honestly, I, I love yeah. it. Now that David mentioned it, I loved all the small acts, accents. Like, the, the, the Jamaican is just like... I, I've been there a few times, and it's just like... I just love hearing it. Because it's also, it's also so great that you're like, they're speaking English, but I have no idea what they're saying. Six yeah. teeth. <laughs> yeah. I can't do that. Uh, I like, well, you know, black black people know how to suck too. <laughs> like, there's, there's a lot of double takes and like, okay, man. <laughs> but uh, all right, Alex, what's your next thing as far as positives before we move on to some? Uh, um, I just want to mention one. The there was one I want to mention, but I'll, I'll talk about it later. But the one I want to mention now it's Marvelous in the Black Hole, which is yeah. another. Uh, did you see it, Aaron? I saw it's one of two whole movies I saw. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other whole movie I want to talk about too, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna save it for. We'll later. get there. Uh, okay. David, did you see it? Mm, uh, I did not see Marvelous in the Black Hole. I saw the other whole movie. <laughs> um, Marvelous in the Black Hole is like the the like quintessential Sundance coming of age, kind of like Coda. I mean, it's like you know a cheesy but cute story of this angsty teen girl dealing with her angsty teen life the context is like her mother had passed away and so the story starts with her just being like upset and angry and she is in the title she is the quote-unquote black hole of the marvelous and the black hole um and you know she's just angry and whatever and it's just to me it was one of these great discoveries of a filmmaker who while i don't think this is her best film um it it's establishes her as a as a strong voice and what i love about marvelous and the black hole is the way it is 
um, this like really uh, it's made better by the addition of magic. So Marvelous, which is the 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 woman, this older woman she meets is a, a magician, and um, Pearl, she ends up, yeah, and she ends up uh, like kind of befriending her and, and kind of like learning about life by by being her like this teen with this older woman, and the way she uses magic, it's like it's super low key, you know, like making flowers come out of your jacket kind of magic, but it's just like this little touches. And then, um, Kate saying is the, the, the filmmaker, she adds these like little animated kind of magical touches throughout. And it's this kind of stuff that I'm like, again, it's not my, it's not like the best film ever, but I just love these little touches that, that show to me that she is capable as a filmmaker of doing something that isn't just, Hey, here's the typical, you know, coming of age story, but adding something more to it and making it light and fun. And it's also a great film where to me, it was, it doesn't go off on these long, elaborate, complex stories. It's just like a nice, light thing. And it's just for the moment in the middle of watching, you know, 30 films at that moment when I got to it, I was like, this is great. It just makes me feel good. And it's just the way it sort of, the, also the way it kind of makes them deal with um, the problems that they're both dealing with, which is, is, it's you know, it's the typical buddy comedy kind of thing where it's like, each one of them has problems and they play off of each other and they learn from each other through those problems. And yet, you know, you don't think she has a problem, but she does and she's got to work on it this way and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I don't know. It all just, it just felt good to me. And I'm mentioning it because again, I I'm sure by the time people will watch it, they'll be like, yeah, that wasn't very great. But, um, I just think it's a, a good debut for a filmmaker, a good future, future debut. Sorry. And that from from now on, I just want to see what she does and and just follow her and and see what she makes next. And um, hopefully, someone throws a bit more of a budget at her so she can do something more with her stories and her filmmaking. Because I think she has the talent, she has the touch. She just needs to kind of craft it into something more. And Sundance always has these kind of moments where, like, you see a a, a filmmaker's first film and you're like, it's got problems, but I see the potential of this person, and I I think they're going to do great things in the future. And that's always kind of the, the festival platform to me is not only, oh, is this the best film ever, but it's also a chance to showcase feature debuts and sort of experimenting and, and trying things different and new and what happens. And sometimes that can be a failure and sometimes not. I don't know. What did you think, Aaron? I, uh, I'm not as enthusiastic as you are. I think it's pretty slight, but it's the kind of I was in a position where I didn't have to like cover a ton of Sundance stuff. It's more of I could watch some things on a blark. And like what's available is what's available. So like this is one of the ones where I just kind of had it on while I was working on other things. And I was like, all right, this is amusing enough. That's not to put down the filmmaking or the filmmakers or whatever. It's just like, okay, like that that was available and I put it on just to have it on. And I enjoyed it well enough without thinking anything special about it. But like, yeah, I get it as far as being like a – there's an audience for this as far as like young girls that look a lot like, you know, uh, Sammy uh, that don't get to see themselves in these kind of stories very often. And I can respect that. And also, this the... is exactly how I felt, Aaron. I saw myself in Sammy, and I was like, <laughs> me and my me and my young girl ways. No, I'm joking. I actually I like that about her because while I haven't had like my mother die and and deal with the angst like she has, I I like it's like it, I like the the universality of her dealing with anger and frustration and learning to let that go. That's all I'll say. Fair enough. And the the father is played by Leonardo Nam, who he's currently on Westworld, but like. I just know him as, like, a guy that's been, like, goofy comedies when he was younger or, like, he was in Tokyo Drift or whatnot. So now he's, like, old enough to play, like, the father in these kind of movies. Like, oh, that's funny. Mm -hmm. Like, that just kind of, you know, and then I see one of those where it's like, oh, this guy that I saw movies, like, 15 years ago is now the father character for, you know, <laughs> these kind of films. Um, regardless, yeah, I mean, you, you've expressed plenty of, you know, fondness for what's going on here and whatnot. I, I have less to say about it beyond. Oh, yeah, it's, it's yeah, enjoyable yeah. enough. 
Okay, so Alex, you want to you want to get into things that are they're less than? No, I'm just I'm just curious. Like so far, we've talked about all this positive. I'm like, what are the ones you guys hated, or what are the ones? I mean, even stuff that uh, I didn't other watch, people hate, but I, I love. But... I didn't watch nearly as many things as you did, um, so I don't have many examples. Mainly because I could see like a brief description, and be like, yeah, that sounds interesting enough. Yeah. So like, no, none of those things were like, oh, this was a giant mistake. The only thing that I didn't like didn't like there's. There's one thing I probably wouldn't have liked, but I fell asleep, so I didn't actually finish it, which was Censor. Um, uh-huh. But the uh, the one thing I didn't like was Robin Wright's directorial debut, Land. Um, uh, <laughs> I, oh, was, I, I was actually, I was not big on it. It's not, I didn't hate it, but it was more. It's more like a I've watched it and I appreciate what they're doing, and I'll move on, never thinking about it again. Like that's kind of the reaction I had to it. Like she, what, what's the she plays? She's a character. She dealing with what's she dealing with? Is it grief? Well, we is, we we don't really. Really, right? We don't that's... know until later in the film, so you probably shouldn't say. Yeah, okay. That's but what something I was... terrible has happened to her, and she's mm-hmm. decided to chuck everything about her life and move to a cabin in the Wyoming mountains. Yeah, and she has minimal experience as far as how to deal with this kind of wilderness, this living. Um, and then she meets a character played by Damien Bashir, who comes along with his, you know, charming self, and he's like, "I can help you," and he starts, <laughs> he starts to help, um, and they form a relationship, like a a bond, I guess, a friendship, a kinship, um, and things go from there. It looks nice, it's well acted, but I just didn't walk away thinking anything of it beyond, eh, I, think I saw it. That's that's kind of that's kind of that's that's it. That's all the reaction I had. So that's not me giving it like a, I mean, like if I had to review this film, I'd be like, all right c plus i don't know like but, but it's, not, it's not one where i walked away thinking anything special about it but david you disagree you like you like the movie uh yeah i mean it's just not it's not in my like top five or anything but mm-hmm. yeah i think it's uh it, it's the setup there, there there's some stuff that i feel like um robin Wright is sort of trying a little too hard to be like i'm a director now but uh eventually when it settles into <laughs> uh just being an actor's movie and um being about the uh robin wright in for a huge part of the movie holding the screen entirely on her own. I was reminded of like all is lost of just uh-huh. like, um, uh, you know, big star, no talking type of movie. Um, I think that stuff's great. And then the chemistry between her and Damien Bashir, um, uh, is, uh, is, is, I think really carries, carries the movie. And once she, I think steps back as a director and just lets herself, the performer carry the movie. Uh, it's, it's quite nice. My question is, Sundance 2020, Tesla. Sundance 2021, Land. What is going to be the next Sundance premiere to highlight the song Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears? <laughs> it's becoming a trend. It'll, it'll be wow. like some Jared Leto project where he's... What, it's about him in the desert not knowing coronavirus was on. He was just singing that song to himself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for those who don't know about... Uh, it, obviously, very few people have seen Land, but Damien Bashir, uh, play, his character, sort of inexplicably just like always seems to have everybody wants to rule the world stuck in his head. While he's like doing work in the woods or whatever, he's just singing it to himself in, in his in his thick accent. It's very, uh, That's it's very charming. That's his go-to. It is, yeah. yeah. I will say, like, not that I require there to be two characters on screen or else I can't appreciate it, but, like, yes, the movie did brighten up for me as far as once he entered the frame. At the same time, I feel maybe maybe I was just disconnected because beyond her just being alone by herself for a majority of the film, it's, like, the drama there of, like, can I do this and am I going to freeze to death or whatever, even though it's never that, like, the stakes aren't that high. It's 
because I think it's all of her own doing, maybe that's why I just wasn't into it as much. It's not like she was thrust into the situation the same way that like Robert Redford is and all is lost, as you used for example. Uh, so I don't know. Like there, it just you know, it wasn't an entire disconnect because I was following along with everything. But at the same time, you know, it's like oh, she drove herself out there. Like what do I, what do I want? To, what do I what am I gonna do with this? Uh, <laughs> I, I I don't know how else to identify. You know what became lacking for me the fact that you're mentioning like i'm the i'm our director now aspect of it yeah that probably subconsciously was entering my mind as far as yeah it's a showcase for you know her doing this thing and good for her and everything but you know it just didn't get to me all that but alice did you see it or no 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 i didn't my my one complaint i'll say Uh, you don't introduce brad leland into a movie (laughs) buddy garrity from friday night lights and then have him disappear for the rest of the movie you know i was (laughs) bummed i was like oh brad leland's in this and then he's never in it again (laughs) Truly unfortunate. That's what I think that's what most of the reviews point out. Uh... <laughs> um, all right, so we're talking about stuff we didn't like. Yeah. So I'm gonna go. This I had a really good Sunday. There's I didn't see anything that I hated, but I will say since I pointed out my favorite film of the festival was a documentary. I'll say my least favorite was also a documentary, and this maybe has less to do with the mm. movies and more to do with my personal taste in documentaries. But my least favorite film that I saw was a documentary called Misha and the Wolves. Uh, yeah. and, and it um, it reminded me of another movie from almost 10 years ago now that a lot of people loved that I just couldn't get on board with. Uh, and it was a documentary called Searching for Sugar Man. Oh. And, I, and I realized that oh. I think for me, when I watch a documentary, I want the experience of discovering things along with the filmmaker. Whereas when it's a documentary like this, that's like a news of the weird, like human interest story type thing. And they've got all of the pieces lined up and the twists and like, Oh, you're not going to believe this. All the dominoes are lined up before the movie even starts. That's, it feels disingenuous to me. And I understand that people love these kind of stories and I would love it if I were maybe reading a magazine article about it. But, uh, uh, I, I always feel kind of manipulated by these type of, you're not going to believe this crazy story, uh, uh, documentaries. There are sometimes there are versions of this, that I think get to something deeper. I remember I really liked uh, three identical strangers from a, a couple of years ago, which is also a Sundance premiere. I, you know, I, I think that had more, it, it delved into that movie delved into more about, uh, you know, what makes a person uh, unique, their surroundings or their genetics or that's that sort of thing. But um, uh, some, when, when a movie just feels like a, a one crazy story, I feel it feels a little cheap to me. But I feel like I, I I feel like based on the ums and ahs that Alex liked Misha and the Wolves. Well, no, I'm I'm I, I, I like the biggest I like Sugar Man. <laughs> That's what. That yeah, was I like Sugar Man. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, no, I I I'm probably the biggest defender of it, but I I do admit that it has a lot of problems. I mean, uh, like in addition to the story being a bit strange for most of it, there's like really terrible music and sound effects that he uses, and I'm just like, <laughs> why are you doing this? Like, let it play. You know, you don't need cheesy like sound effects. And then um, the other thing to me that that kind of goes with what you're saying is that it didn't really come together to me. I, like I, I like I got the story, I was figuring it out, but it only made real deeper sense when in the last third he brings in, and this isn't really spoiling it, but he, in the last third he brings in this like Holocaust um, historian who kind of like contextualizes everything you just saw, which I liked because I liked hearing from her, and she kind of did a better job of it. But it was just strange for like. 
65 minutes into the movie, you're, you're kind of following the story. And then suddenly, like, you need someone to come in now who we had not been introduced to the rest of the film to explain it and contextualize it, which I – the only thing I'll say in opposition to you is that I, I do think it brings up these these good points. But this is just because this is what the story is, which is the points of, like, um, uh, the, the greed of – one character in it but also just the way we twist stories and you know we turn stories into what we want to hear and how the the world kind of does that and like um the the final reveal which i won't say here is interesting in that it's not what you think but it's also not what you also might think it is like it's all of that comes together in a way that makes me be like oh that's really interesting and kind of tragic uh and sad but um i'm really let down by the film not being as polished and and mm well-crafted as it should have been to tell this story. And and to your point, too, one of the interesting arguments I had on Twitter about it was, oh, they're, they're missing the main character interview subject. And um, to, to give context, there's, like, a woman who was a, a Holocaust survivor, and she, like, told her story about uh, experience in Europe from Belgium, and this was turned into a book. And basically, they never could get the original woman to be interviewed for the film. And on one hand, I had this thought, okay, of course she's going to say no. She, she didn't even, there were a couple times in the film she um, rejected doing publicity. So of course she's going to say no to this film. She doesn't want to dig it up. She doesn't want to get into it. She knows that people are going to twist the story, but that doesn't necessarily mean there was someone on Twitter who said, Oh, they should never have made the doc at all if they couldn't have gotten her. No. And I was like, well, no, I don't agree with that because no. I, she is an impossible get. Like, let's say you want to tell the story and you can't get her. Well, how do you still do that without her? But at the same time, their point was that uh, you need her to give her version of the story and her side of the story. And it's like, yeah, but you kind of don't. Like, you you wouldn't I mean, need you, the book publisher to explain why she did what she did to to know why she did what she did. You know, you don't need Anne and, Frank to tell the Anne Frank story. <laughs> and also, this woman published an autobiography so yeah yeah her, so. her story her story is already out there there's a there's a source uh to go through what well, i will say the movie made me want to watch so they made in was it in belgium or in france they made a movie based on like yeah, a fictionalized movie but, uh, uh called surviving with wolves uh based on this woman's autobiography i it looked the clips they showed looked incredibly corny but now i'm dying <laughs> yeah. to see this movie i know but, i thought the same thing i actually well the first thing i thought was like how do we not know about this movie like we're all film critics we've never heard of this but then i think it's like then what happens you're like oh that's why we haven't heard about right. this movie. yeah <laughs> I, I think i think no no doubt like a documentary can be you know it's always going to have a side or a perspective that it's taking but it comes down to the filmmaking as far as how effective it's going to be regardless of who you can get to be involved yeah. and that goes for any movie in general if you can't get something you work around it i mean and regardless of what the intention was to begin with and i'm speaking of you know not having seen this movie but that's not that doesn't feel like a requirement to the would that would that be like a great thing that they can work in and do what they yeah sure but at the same time it's like they, they're making choices here obviously and i feel like going into something like this probably already pretty sure you're not going to be able to get a certain person to talk about certain things yeah plus plus put. the whole point in this film is that no one is going to admit to the camera that they did what they did for these reasons and that the whole point of telling these stories is for you to uh, infer and pick up on what they're doing and why they're doing it this way and that that'll happen no matter if you interview them or not because that's part of the story and that's part of the elements of humanity and what they do and how they react and respond and, and uh, choices they make throughout their life and that's the that's to me the greatest point of this film is like examining that and and also examining how we simplify so much of other people's stories and and lose out on the complexity of actually what's really going on here 
Like, I, I don't hate the publisher, but I do hate the publisher. You know, like that kind of thing. I, I will say that I did have the choice of watching this or Marvelous in the Black Hole, and I was thinking, I need something light. And I was like, well, I looked at the poster. I was like, well, it's a cool poster, but Holocaust story, maybe not right now, even though it's 90 <laughs> minutes. And so I, I moved on from that one to go choose the other thing instead. You'll see it eventually, or maybe not. We don't know. <laughs> Well, you know, I could, it, what I, you know, when the popcorn's hot enough, and I don't really like popcorn, you know, I'm always good for, I'm always down for a good Holocaust story, let me tell you. I think, I mean, uh, Mission Wolves did get acquired by someone, but I don't Yeah, they, I think it was actually before the fest, and they announced it at the fest to kind of, like, boost the publicity. Right, oh, this gets into, um, I wanted to air my minor grievance about the Q&As. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, did, yeah. What, what which is that, because they are using plan to use the Q&As as promotional material after the fact, they had like a no spoilers policy in the Q&As, which to me is like that's not, the Q&A is supposed to like reflect the movie we all just saw and we should be able to talk about it openly especially a movie like Misha and the Wolves which has so many like secrets and twists and turns, it just felt uh, like a real letdown, it felt very frustrating to, what, is, to, what does to, no spoilers mean? No spoilers. <laughs> like, like don't record the Q&A and post it? or what, what is, No, no, no. no, that's like, no they're recording it. it. They're saying, we're going to be using this video later for people who might not have seen the movie yet. So so in your questions, or or to the people being... Oh, okay. So no... Okay, got yeah. it. Yeah, it behave as been... if the people haven't seen the movie yet, and that's I think silly. that was a mistake. That's yeah. dumb. Yeah, it should, <laughs> yeah. it should have been the opposite. They should have said be aware this will talk about the film and include spoilers. Like, that's the way they should have done it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who that wants, makes sense. Like, I actually didn't even know that. Wow, that's sad. That's like <laughs> me doing this podcast, where, like, we try to refrain from spoilers, but at the same time, it's like, who's listening to a movie podcast about this movie that came out this weekend? And it's like, you know what? This seems like a good thing to listen to right now before I see the movie. I, I don't know. But <laughs> we make that choice every week. Uh, Alex, what's the what's the worst or weakest well, thing that you saw? On my list of words, um, my question is if you if you guys have seen this, uh, did any of you see the the Romeo and Juliet the R J R hash J thing? I saw that and I was like, that looks like an error. I'm not going to click on that. Good, you made the right choice. <laughs> <click. laughs> yeah, it was it was, and I honestly like I was like, I'm not going to watch this. And then I had a free slot and I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this, and I immediately regret it. Is it is it um, R hashtag J or what is it? Something like well, that. so there's a controversy because the poster in the in the film it there's a, a chat moment where it's R heart emoji J and that uh, everyone's saying that the the film realized that they couldn't put a heart emoji as the actual title so they just like turned it into a hash and it's like that doesn't actually do what this whole point of the it's, it's, it's whatever. <laughs> I feel like some out of touch like old money guy is like put a hashtag in it. The kids love yeah. hashtags. I've been hearing a lot about hashtags. It's trying to make it connect with it's just I don't know. The whole film is like that. The whole film is that um, I can't, I can't even search through... I can't even search it on IMDb right now. All I'm getting is RJ Mitty yeah. from Breaking Bad. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and the whole film is just this massive disaster of like trying to do the told through screens crap, but it's but it's like it's as bad as in the early found footage films when the when the found footage genre was taking off. And there would be all these things where you're like, why does this guy have a camera right now? And why is he like pointing the camera at this thing and doing that? And that's like all this film is, is just that whole you're like, why do they have a camera here? But it's told through the the extremely annoying social media live streaming screen crap, which is just like it's I, I said it's a it's a noble attempt at reinventing Romeo and Juliet, but a, a completely royal failure in every sense of like None of it is interesting. There's zero chemistry between the Romeo and Juliet. There's just like, 
it's just a, such a disaster. And I was baffled when I watched it, and people were like, oh, it's a really good reinvention. I was like, no, it's not. It's just a terrible, <laughs> so, terrible so tale. To be clear, it's a Romeo and Juliet up, modern update using using screens as a screen movie, a screen vision movie. Yeah, yeah. That's yes. something. Okay, I did find it, and it does. It actually stars R.J. Seiler, <laughs> um, who was in a Sundance movie, me, me, Earl, and the Dying Girl, of course. There's just a lot of connections here. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I would okay, love so... it was good as it should have been. Like the idea of like, oh, hey, we're gonna reinvent Romeo and Juliet, but through you know. So they're current... opposing. They're opposing families over screens. Yeah, yeah, and it's it, it's straight up, you know, dialogue and and um uh whatever the families are Montague Capulet I don't I don't know does, the exact does does virtu does virtual Tybalt murder virtual Mercutio basically I mean they're I'm yeah, fascinated it's, by it's the concept of this really I'm not gonna watch yeah, it it's all there it's all there really, and that, that sounds so funny to me it's not virtual but it's like oh there's a live stream of the fight and you're like oh come on oh okay. <laughs> It's just, and then it is virtual. And the, the the other extremely terrible choice they made is that there's been a lot of, at least I think, a lot of good screen films. This one does this thing where when the person, like when the Romeo or the Juliet is, you know, you're seeing their screen and they're in a chat screen, you're also hearing their voice. And at first you're hearing the, like literally their ums and ahs. They're like, mm, uh. And then you start to hear their like um, various like inflection emotions, like, oh, come on. Uh. And I was like, this is not right for this film. Like, I know it was, I understand the filmmaker. They're sitting down there saying, well, the chat screen is silent and we got to put some audio in this scene. What do we do? Putting the person's ums and ahs was not the right choice. <laughs> it was not. Like, it really, it made it even worse than, like, it, it was already bad and this just made it worse. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I was hoping you guys had seen it because I, I, lo I love having a good argument, but the, no. Well, we didn't. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm curious who else saw John and the Hole since we talked about the other Hole movie. Let's talk about the other Hole movie. I saw it and liked it. Alex, did you see John and the Hole? I loved it. Okay. I <laughs> I liked it well enough. It felt like Lantimos light, um, but yeah. I, I still appreciated what it was doing, even though even if I didn't think it was great. Uh, this movie concerns a young boy. He described this. He like he discovers there's like what a, a an abandoned like shaft near bunker. his house. Yeah, they said they were like building a bunker. In yeah, it. yeah, like an abandoned bunker project thing. And one night he drugs his family and uh, consisting of uh, what Michael C. Hall, Tessa Farmiga, and who's the mother? Um, yeah, I know her, but I forget her name. Oh, because I, I just Jennifer Ely. Because um, yeah. I, I just saw her in Saint Maud like two weeks ago. Um, but so he drugs them and puts them into the hole. The hole cannot be escaped from without assistance. Uh, so it's a deep, it's a deep hole outside. And then he just decides to have like a life doing whatever he wants to for some time. Uh, the the I mentioned Lantimos already, and I feel like it's pretty, it feels like an obvious comparison, but apt nonetheless, just because of the kind of the dialogue rhythm uh, is very specific, especially for the child, which reminded me a lot of something like Killing of a Sacred Deer, for example. And also just the kind of the nature of the filmmaking, very kind of static in a lot of ways and drab and in, in its presentation or what have you. Uh, you guys, I feel like you guys liked it a little more than I do, though. David, what do you what do you like about um, John and the Hole? Um, I think that I mean, I, I hadn't thought of Lanthimos, but that makes sense. The the, the comparisons i thought of were thoroughbreds which is also oh, yeah. like okay. a, a a very sort of flat affect uh movie about a 
young rich sociopath um and then i thought sort of generally about my uh michael hanukkah as a director um and and uh the the way that the movie seems to be like this is a terrible thing that's happened to michael z hall and jennifer eel and and taza from but uh the movie doesn't really feel sorry for them uh (laughs) because I, i think the movie is very critical in general of um this uh cold detached uh, upper middle class family um i think it helped me to think of the movie as a dark comedy uh yes, which is the yeah, yeah. thing um and uh and this is something i pointed out in or something i wondered in my uh, review is that as harrowing as this all is this might count as the closest thing to like a family bonding experience that this like cold distant family has ever had uh, <laughs> together um there's a great thing before it's all happened there's a part where we see them just sort of occupying their different rooms uh, at night and someone somewhere in the house is watching a sitcom and there's all this canned laughter coming from the tv meanwhile we're seeing these silent people in this like dark but expensive house like not talking to one another uh and that laughter coming that candle laughter coming from the tv felt almost like a a mockery of of uh of a real family um so yeah i and charlie shotwell is great a lot of the movie relies on him he's john the kid yeah yeah uh sorry a lot of the movie is uh there's less of a like plot to this movie than there is just like a setup sure and then it's the then it's just like a, a the next hour is like how every scene is like how crazy is this kid is he gonna is he gonna kill somebody we don't know and this <laughs> movie just sort of lives in that tension for a while and that requires a lot i think of charlie shotwell and i think he does a very good job small sidebar before we get to yeah. alex michael c hall does he kind of have the face of eh, he seems like he deserved it like i just feel like i get that vibe <laughs> from him a lot <laughs> he's but he always he for being um from his tv show he can now always have that like you never really know kind of right. side to him yeah it's just like everything i've ever seen him in obviously including dexter just like the the constant expression on his face seems to be like I mean, he seems like he probably deserves something to happen to him. Like, I, I don't know what that is, but I don't know how to describe it. It just seems like that's the kind of look he had. Maybe it's that beard he has. I don't know. Whatever. Alex, that's you love probably, No, but that's probably why they cast him. Is that they, He, like, uh, yeah, like everyone is kind of in the ambiguousness of it. And I I agree. Yeah, if you, if you put, like, I don't know, John C. Riley down there, be like, oh, that's sad. I don't want to see John C. Yeah. stuck in a hole. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, love a, I love a good fuck with you movie. I just love, like, I'm well, not always, but sometimes, like, um, Killing of a Sacred Deer, I had the same experience experience where i was just cackling the whole time like at the, at the can screening just being like yes and i remember people next to me like i could hear their discomfort and i kind of missed that on this one i was like i missed the people next to me and like the walkouts of people who just can't stand it because I, because what movie, i how many people watch that and think like oh he's taking this too seriously where it's like that movie seems so deliberately funny like killing him yeah but like, some people don't like the discomfort of that you're being fucked with as an audience I get that. It just yeah. like that seems like the epitome of what Lantimos can do as far yeah, as yeah. Well, <laughs> so it's like this is beyond parody at this point as far as what he's capable of doing to make extreme situations seem darkly comedic. Anyway, sorry, this movie. What's going on? No, no, but but it's the same with John in the Hole too in the in the way he handles that. But I but I the other thing I really love about it is that it's it has this like beautiful ambiguous ambiguousness to its writing that every time anyone presents their theory about it, like David, what you just said, I was like, wow, I never thought about that. And that makes a lot of sense about the family and the way they come together is that every theory about this, I'm like, Hey, that can work. There was a guy on Twitter who I follow another critic who said, Oh, this is about um, uh, like white supremacy and, and, and white privilege. And I was like, wow, I didn't think about that, but that kind of could work too. And my theory was that it's about 
And this is just because I, as I was watching, it just came to mind as I was watching is that the reference for the kid is that, you know, he locks up the family. He kind of just like does, does fuck all, you know, and he, it's not as, it's not like he goes and kills anyone. Like you're saying, David, like you don't know, but he doesn't, but, but at the same time, you're like, you don't know he could. But what I love about that is that it made me think that he's like this super wealthy elites who just uh, throw the, 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 the poor people in the pit and just do fuck all and don't care. And just like occasionally we'll throw you some food down there and that he just runs around as a child. And that the metaphor to me was like a lot of these um, adults are kind of just dumb children running around with nothing to do and no plans and no nothing. And that that was like my thought. And, it, and that even though my theory could either be wrong or just my own version of it. I love that this kind of film allows us to bring these different interpretations and ideas to it. And that like all of them work for John and the Hole. You could present something else to me totally crazy. And I'd be like, that actually kind of works for this too. Because the ending, which I don't want to say here, but I love the ending because it's such a, it is such a shocker ending. And it is such a like, I think it adds a layer to it that, that um, is really uncomfortable, but for a, a point that makes you think that you leave like, oh, wow. Like, um, Last year's, or maybe it was two years ago, Loose, the Sundance film. Oh, yeah, a couple years ago, yeah. Um, where you're just like, oh, wow, I, I don't know what, I, like, I'm uncomfortable, but I like that feeling because it leaves me thinking and it leaves me wondering why I'm uncomfortable and what this made me think and what does it mean and what how does it reference the real world and all these things. I don't know. It just, all of that got to me in a way where I was like, yeah. And I kind of, and I also kind of love that people hate it because I'm like, of course you're going to hate it. <laughs> it's going to mess with you and you're going to not like it. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we've talked about both the whole... I don't have any much to add. I think we talked about it for plenty already. Yeah. Um, let's talk about... Uh, how about this? I'll talk about... I'll talk about something uh, involving a, uh, a a filmmaker that's otherwise quite large, um, but decided to make a Sundance movie. We can all go on that theme because I think there's a number of projects where it's like, hey, this is a generally a pretty big person, but they're like making a Sundance thing. And I want to talk, talk about Edgar Wright's The Sparks Brothers. Did you guys see Edgar Wright's documentary on Sparks? I missed it. I did, yeah. You did? Yeah, I did. Sorry. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Well, so Edgar Wright, in between making movies, decided he wanted to take three years to make a documentary covering the band Sparks, a band I had never heard of before. Um, I'm just not that hip, apparently. But um, <laughs> it is like this art pop rock group that's been around since the early '70s um, that have influenced plenty of people, as evidenced by the 80 plus interviews that Edgar Wright got to have, you know, to discuss this band at depth. Um, they've had a very specific style. It's a lot of weird and zaniness mixed with, you know, what I would, what I would say is good music. I mean, they've been around for long enough people to recognize that way, uh, but never quite like broke out into the mainstream despite flirting with it a number of times through movie soundtracks or experimental film projects or what have you. Um, I, as far as a documentary goes, it is two hours and 15 minutes. It's quite long. Um, I'll, and I think it's enjoyable without being all that deep, which is odd for a movie that's that long covering a band consisting of, consisting of two people and going over their entire discography. I think that's because of having so many interviews, that's great, but it never really challenges anything beyond this band is great and this is why. Uh, there are some you know moments that explain why they may not have broken out in certain ways at points in their time, but for the most part, it's such an enthusiastic documentary, which is... You know, that's fun to watch, but I can't say much more about it beyond a lot of people really like Sparks, and now I know who Sparks is. Uh, and I feel like I could I kind of could have got that in, like, you know, 90 minutes. Uh, so I, but Alex, I'm curious, what did you think of Sparks? No, I, Sparks I agree with you. I agree with you in that I think the only point that really stuck with me was when the, the two brothers straight up say this at one point in one of their interviews is they're like, our consistency 
and our desire to make music that we want to make and not commercial music is what mm -hmm. should impress you the most. And like after two two hours and twenty minutes of this film, I was like, oh, that's their point. <laughs> like, and I and I agree that it, it goes on a little bit long, but it but it's also tough because it's like fifty years of of them doing stuff. They have to cover a lot of um, like fifty years is a lot of time of different things. I agree, but at the same time, it's like, well, you just don't need to include every album. I, I like know, that. I know. Now that's no. Obviously, there are a lot of fans of Sparks, so I imagine the are, super are fans. There? <laughs> I mean, uh, enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there's Pat Oswalt and Scott Ackerman and, <laughs> and Beck. Um, but, but I mean, you know, the fans of Spark. If this is going to be the only documentary ever on Sparks, which, you know, maybe. Good. They got they got it out of their system, I guess. I guess that's the way to look at it. It's just as a, you know, as a newbie to Sparks, I can appreciate that there's passion involved in this and that the band has been doing what they've doing, been doing without selling out for, you know, decades. It's just as a, you know, as a fan of, it's not that I thought Edgar Wright was going to revolutionize documentary filmmaking, but it's like, all right, cool. <laughs> you, you made this passion project as far as documenting this band, and now I know about them. I, you know when it comes to documentaries that I love or rewatch or what have you, it's generally because there's something there that wants me to bring me back to it because, hey, not only am I learning about this thing or am I exploring this, but I'm getting a sense, I'm getting some kind of feeling out of it, I guess, or I don't know how to explain all of it, but. No, that's, that's well said. And then yeah. I, I, I agree with you too. That it's like, I don't know if I'll ever rewatch this, but now I've been in, informed and um, I don't want to say turned into a Sparks fan, but like, now I have a greater appreciation of them that I never would have had without it. But sure. will I rewatch it? I don't know. They, they as characters, not but you know, as as the band, the duo that they are, they seem like intriguing guys. Like if they get like brought into some film project to do the music supervising or what have you, and I know, and the movie goes into the fact that they have a uh, film project in the works that's going to oh, happen. Oh right, right, right. But like. I will say if like I was to hear there, you know, if the brother's mayor turned up in something, I'd be like, oh, I know who they are. And I'd be maybe more interested by that point because I got to see this documentary, which is yeah, you know, that's a win. Right. That's a win in their favor. So. Yeah. The other thing that bothered me and, I, and I'm just going to ask because maybe I missed it and forgot was did they ever explain his mustache? They make jokes about it the whole film and they talk about how he won't explain it. And then I'm like, that's the all, that's the only thing I wanted. This whole film was like, please explain your mustache. And then they never did. As no. far as I can recall, no, no there's no. You know, I know, people, and I know, and I know people, that that's people like, like to look a certain way. <laughs> yeah, I know that that's the point. I know that they were like, oh, we're not going to explain it, but I was like, <laughs> it, it it bothered me because they kept bringing it up. I'm like, the least you can do is at some point have stopped bringing it up for a reason of you're gonna give even if even if it's as simple as you have the clip of him being like, oh, I just liked it because I liked it. I'd have been like, okay, fine. But the fact that they just like bring it up constantly and then never ever address it, it was always. I mean, they do like, reference the fact that it's directly. It's, it seems directly inspired by Charlie Chaplin and Adolf Hitler. I mean, that's, right, but that's it, what they, they kept saying that. They're like, oh, it's like this, this, and this. But I'm like, but is that really why he did that? Or is he, I don't, I don't know. Is I he... like as he, as he grew up, he changed it to um, John Waters. Like, that's nice. Right, but that, right, but that's my point. I was like, clearly he I like, know, I get mustache. what you're saying. There's no, there's no depth as far as <laughs> what the reasoning is, but people look how they want to look. That's all I got for that. I don't need an explanation. Okay, okay. You know, Fair enough. I, I look at you and I'm thinking, okay, I mean, you can choose different glasses every now and again, but do what you want to do. I don't know. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Sizzling fashion. Yeah, real, real hot take there. Alex Billington wears glasses that, 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 that maybe he some can new change. <laughs> David, let's move back to you. Are there any, like, high-profile people involved in any project you saw that you wanted to point out? 
Sorry. So the question is high profile people. Like, you know, like a person that's like, oh, they have a Sundance film, but they're usually in huge movies or something like that. Uh, I mean, we already talked about Robin Wright. So, God, I don't I I didn't realize I was going to be asked this. It's a silly way to narrow things down, (laughs) but I figured that might be a way to go. (laughs) I'll throw one out, but you probably haven't seen it. But Okay. Together, together. Did you see this one? No. Is that the Ed Helms one? (laughs) Yeah, Ed Helms. Um, but he does he does Sundance Indies all the time, so it's not particularly. Well, regardless, to talk about what'd you like about it? Would you like it? <laughs> it's just a it's a good movie. It's um another uh, colleague of mine had mentioned it as the great um uh, platonic friend film, and that's that's actually what it is. Which is it? It's also one of these clever uh, gender flip films where the whole concept is just like a single dad wants to have a baby, not a single mother, and that it, it's like you go through all the motions of, you know, the the biases and the, the things that he has to deal with as, as to wanting to be a, a, a single father and how that kind of relates to gender or not and, and what the surrogate woman goes through as well, being friends with him and all this stuff. And it's, it's like, really cute. It, like, it's exactly the kind of film that I should hate and I didn't, and that's always a, a joy to me is I'm like, oh, this is actually cute and good and, like, has some really clever, smart moments to it and Ed Helms is great and, you know, it works. Does he pull out the banjo? Oh, no. Um, no. Okay, just stop thinking about it. That's just, it's like, I'm sure he does it, but I like to make you think about it. Uh, David, I don't mean to put you on the spot. So, like, what else? What, what's another movie you want to highlight? Uh, I, uh, another movie I want to highlight has nothing to do with uh, anything. Yeah, no, no worries. About. Yeah, just go. Um, <laughs> but a movie I really loved, uh, uh, a Spanish movie called El Planeta, uh, which uh, is directed by a woman named Amalia Ullman, who I uh, guess is a, a multimedia artist. Um but uh, this is a very sort of straightforward comedy uh, about a uh, she plays she stars uh, my own uh, plays a young woman who has moved back to her hometown of Gijon, Spain, um, with her mother, played by Amelia Oman's actual mother, Ale Oman, um, after the death of the father husband uh whatever but we also sort of realize get the impression that like oh also maybe she moved back home because her career wasn't working out in london and 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 uh she's sort of a uh sort of a a frustrated sort of sputtered out late 20s uh uh uh, not i want to say failure but um you know has failed at her at her career um and it's mostly it's mostly just a hangout movie these two women who are broke but are trying to maintain a, uh, uh, a a certain level of of comfort and fashion in their in their life uh partially because they believe they deserve it but also partially because um Amari Oman's character is like a freelancer and looking the part as a freelance designer is part of uh what she needs to do so you know they buy new dresses and and, and jackets and and stuff but their electricity gets shut off because they don't pay their electric bill um there's a, a a a very funny uh part of them like standing around their tiny kitchen with no heat they're both like wrapped in blankets um uh, and there's no food uh except for some cookies or or or, or some biscuits or something and Amalia Ullman says i can't keep eating carbs or else i'll have a poor person's body um jeez uh, so um the uh yeah it, the movie's all of like 85 minutes long you know black and white dry uh comedy but i think it um it invites a lot of uh sort of laughing at these women but in this in the way that you would your 
your friends, like shaking your heads at them. And it, there's a lot of sympathy for them, actually, even af- even as the movie understands that they're kind of uh, ridiculous. Um, uh, it was, I, I think, one of the most just simply enjoyable movies that I saw at Sundance. Sounds like Spanish Whitnail and I. Uh, <laughs> they're not drunks. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> Neither of you saw El Planeta. No, but it um, sounds it sounds fun. I really wanted to. Because I mean, uh, that was another one that everyone kept talking about once it got going, and I yeah. missed it. And I also, see, I mean, I, did, uh, I talked before about seeing a different version of Honolulu when I was a simple man. Uh, Gijon, Spain is the seventh largest city in Spain, not a city I was familiar with at all. It seems like a, a, a lovely place on the northern coast of, of Spain. And, and uh, that's another uh, plus column, <laughs> check in the plus column for watching El Planeta. It's a, uh, a view of a city I've never seen on film before. I see director mm-hmm. Nacho Vigalondo has a role in this movie as well. Yes, he does show up and he's in the opening scene. Um, huh. Yeah. Uh, oh, and I guess speaking of big stars, he's not actually in the movie, but Martin Scorsese shows up in some archival footage in the movie. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> so we, we, could, we could check this off as far as you qualifying yeah. for that category yes. of things. Because I guess Martin Scorsese apparently actually did show up at some sort of film festival or something in in this in this city, and they use that footage uh, near the end of the movie. Cool. That's El Planeta. That sounds interesting. I, uh, I'm yeah. going to be able to catch that at some point. Uh, Alex, what's another movie you want to bring up? Um, Strawberry Mansion. Strawberry Mansion. No, um, this is one of those in in true uh, Sundance fashion. I watched like half asleep an hour after I woke up in the morning and was like, you know, taken away to this. It's a very dreamy, trippy film, um, and it's made by Kentucker Oddly, who's a indie uh, superstar, so to say. Not really, but I mean, he's got a bunch of really cute super indie low-key stuff and co-directed with albert bernie and they they both also star in it um and it's this uh i was not expecting this i had no idea what i was about to see before the film premiered they had released one still that's like a a picture of a mansion and i love going into these because it's it's a complete true you have no idea what you're gonna watch you don't know anything about it kind of experience and um it reminded me a lot of the science of sleep it's a very Michelle Gondry dreamy, like there's quirky handmade effects and weird things going on. You go into dreams, you don't know what's a dream or reality. Um, very grainy, lo-fi feeling to it. And um, the story is super quirky because it's like set in the future, but not really in the future, where they can go into your dreams and you get taxed for things in your dreams. So it's this kind of like anti-capitalist um, fable about... Uh, this guy who he's he's like the tax auditor who goes into this old woman's house and finds all her VHS tapes and he wears this weird cardboard helmet to watch them and it's, it's so kooky and strange but I just kind of loved it for that idea of like I'm a huge science of sleep fan so when I stumbled upon this and was like this is like new science of sleep I was like this is my jam totally and like it has the uh, I would give it the award for the best title card in the film uh, of any film at Sundance because the title card is like this unexpected, ridiculous, absurd moment where he's like about to lick an ice cream cone, and it's just everything's great about it. In the in the offbeat, unexpected, kooky, weird Sundance indie way, um, and I think very few people saw it because it was like they, they didn't know. And I'm glad I caught up with it for that reason. That I was just like, what is this? It's totally my jam. And they they it also felt like a lot like Gondry that they just enjoyed making these practical props and just doing weird stuff and like having fun coming up with it on their own with their own homemade stuff and not having to be all polished about it. 
Um, and it seems so out of touch with 2021 in that way. But I think that's also why I really enjoyed it is it didn't need that polish. It was just like, let's throw all this junk in this film and have a good time telling this strange, dreamy, love, anti-capitalist, weird, funky story. I don't know if that interests any of you. <laughs> everyone, everyone who probably just listened to me is like, I don't want to see this movie. But um, it was Yeah, cool. I'm going to edit this out of the show. So. <laughs> <laughs> Your sponsors will not allow you to play it. But... Yeah, all, the, all those sponsors we have. Um but no, yeah, I, I, I saw this, so I didn't watch it, but I uh, I, I heard a lot a lot of, uh, like, people are liking the Strawberry Mansion movie, so it's like, all right. So I'm glad I know a little bit more about it now, so thank you. Yeah, and I mean, I never know what these films, like, every time at Sundance, like, once I see a film and I know what it is, I can, like, immediately tell there's going to be a group of people who hate it for this reason, and there's going to be a group of people who love it for this reason. And that was Strawberry Mansion, I'm like, oh, there's going to be people who hate this because it's too, like kitschy indie style and then there's gonna be people like me who are just like this is so cool i love it and it 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 falls into that category very easily in like a if you don't like this you're gonna just hate everything about it (laughs) but i loved it that's my defense in in no other way besides saying that i it just was up my alley is that the term (laughs) yeah that's fair (laughs) okay let's uh let's do two more films each and then we can uh move on um, the next, the next one I want to talk about was Passing. Did anyone else see Passing? No, I but just, I'll have a chance on Netflix soon. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I am, I'm very curious because I heard uh, every range of commentary on this, like people who hate it, people who loved it, people who think it's brilliant, people who think it's like mediocre. Where do you fall, Aaron? I, I'm in the um, good side of this as far as like I think it's a good movie, not a great movie. It's directed by Rebecca Hall. Um, it stars uh, Ruth Negga and Tessa Thompson. Uh, they play former best friends who reconnect uh, in New York later in life. It's set in the, I want to say, 50s-ish. Um, it's shot in black and it's made in black and white. And it's like it's trying to give you this kind of like Douglas Sirk kind of like old fashioned type feel. But the 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 large the the large conceit of the film is that Ruth Negga uh, and Tessa Thompson both play characters who know how to pass for white in this era uh, specifically Ruth Negga's character who's actually married uh, to Alexander Skarsgård's character who believes that she is in fact a white person uh, so the yeah. like like that's the extent that she's gone through as far as wanting to present herself this way in order to quote unquote pass uh, in this society Tessa Thompson's married to Andre Holland's character obviously they're very much a black couple um, and she kind of flirts with the idea of, of being able to pull this off, but it's not like the thing that she does in the same way that Ruth Negga's character does. The idea of this is that Ruth Negga becomes this kind of uh, installed character in the household of Thompson and Holland's place where they have two children as well. And she becomes this kind of uh, point of contention slash point of obsession for all the different characters, including their friends and whatnot, who they also meet along the way. I feel like that, like there's an interesting point being made in this film as far as what black character, what black people are going through during this time and how they are able to kind of adapt to society. And I just, I'm never quite sure if, if Hall, who who um, adapted this film from a novel, um, I'm never quite sure if there's like a, a stronger point being made. Like it's nice to observe the things that are going on here. And there's 
I've heard it being called as a psychological thriller. There's an element of that there, I suppose, in the same way that it's there in a movie I feel this is very comparable to for whatever reason, Shirley. Uh, I, feel like I didn't like very much. I didn't like Shirley that much, but I, I see what they're... I see where that comparison comes from as far as it's an intense character study and it's not as though like something malicious is going to take place necessarily or there's some kind of, you know, otherworldly threat that we're not anticipating. But there is this kind of like constant tension going on because of the nature of what Ruth Negus character is doing. And I can appreciate all of that. And it's it's nicely made as far as being like a, you know, a contemporary film shot in black and white on purpose to further emphasize the themes. But it just never like pulled me in stronger than uh, than I would have liked for a movie that has this kind of subject matter as its core theme and yet doesn't quite you know do more with it. So again, I think it's like good enough because you know good people do good work on film. That's not surprising to me. But it just as far as the story goes, it doesn't really pull me anywhere further than that. So yeah, that was passing. Which uh, yeah, a lot of could... a lot of what I heard about it was exactly that kind of thing. Like. Oh, I like the concept, but it never really amounted to much, which yeah. is strange because I thought that was like, I mean, you already covered it, but I thought that was kind of the whole point of it was like, oh, hey, we want to tell the story that gives you greater context in the in the the, the things that people in race have to deal like how racism and race plays a role at that time. But people also said it was also about like identity and kind of what yeah, people so. want to accomplish and what they have to do to accomplish those things. Mm hmm. The elements are in there, and like, and it's not as yeah. I, I hear what you're saying as far as just being able to see this could be good enough. It's like that comes down to you know filmmaking choices. Like yes, I'm happy to see a movie that doesn't necessarily revolve around plot. At the same time, it's not like those movies are immune from being you know difficult to embrace further. Sometimes sure, 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 don't course. do it as well as a, I know you know yeah. But but yeah, that's just kind of where I came away with it. Uh, David, let's go to you. What's another film you want to make note of here? Um. In the interest of time, I'll keep this one short because I need to uh, start with the uh, disclaimer that the director uh, has been a guest on my podcast multiple times over uh, the past eight uh -oh. years or so. But, um, <laughs> uh, but I want to uh, just point out how much I loved Rodney Asher's A Glitch in the Matrix, which you can already mm. watch now. Uh, yeah, it's, it's available it's, on it's out. Uh Yeah, this is uh, uh, another sort of... Uh, uh, if you know Rodney Asher, he made two... Room 237 um, mm -hmm. uh, about uh, people's different theories about uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And then he made The Nightmare, which is a documentary about sleep paralysis. Uh, and A Glitch in the Matrix is about simulation theory, the idea that we are living in not reality, but in a computer simulation made by a more advanced uh, race of beings. Um, and like his other documentaries, he sort of his form follows the function uh, uh, as, as it were. It's not just a straightforward uh, documentary. If you look at if you if you compare it to like The Nightmare, when people tell stories about sleep paralysis he decided well i'll do the reenactments of these stories as sort of mini little horror movies uh here you've got a similar thing where when people are talking about simulation theory you get these examples that are like built in minecraft or built out of uh uh out of like google earth I imagery it's you know he's using uh simulations to simulate simulations um uh it's a it's a, a very uh fun and interesting movie but it also uh gets at the ethical implications of uh, what does it mean if we're not living in what we have assumed to be uh, reality. And the movie does end up going to some pretty dark uh, places, but um, I really liked it. 
And I won't here's say my, next one. Here's my, here's, here's, here's my yeah. one question. Because I do I do find this interesting, and I do want to watch it because it sounds like it'd be entertaining and intriguing, what have you. Does simulation theory exist before 1999? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the... I don't know if it was called that before The Matrix, but... Uh, uh, one of the main, actually, you might say the thread that he hangs the entire film on is a speech that Philip K. Dick gave in France in 1977, I think. Hmm. Okay. Um, uh, 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 about essentially this idea. Well, I'm already I more intrigued. I love, I, I mean, I started watching this and the, the two things that, like, I was like, this is what I want to see are one, that it connected with the Matrix and explains a lot with the Matrix. And then also the whole Philip K. Dick thing. And like showing his speech, I was like, what? I had, I don't know why I had never known that he had given this speech and like listening to it. I'm like, uh, PKD and like what his stories are. And I love that he just straight up admits in this speech and this, I mean, it's kind of a spoiler, but not really where he's just like, all my books are me telling stories that I've had about alternate like realities. And I'm like, what? No way. But I mean, I, I, it's great. Cause it's, he, he takes that and he, he runs with it and he says, what, what would all of this mean if this were true? And where, where does it go in a very Rodney Asher way? Because, um, I read some people who had said they hated it because they knew that all the people in it were white males. And I was like, that's his point. He's he's <laughs> yeah. he's pointing that out with the film. He's trying to say, like, yes, they are, and this is why they are. And this is not, what... Not having seen it, I can tell you right now, I guarantee you most of the people are white males. <laughs> <laughs> this. I know, but, it, but it's, the point is not like, oh, that's bad because he didn't interview the right people. His point is like, no, there's a reason why yeah. they're all white males. Exactly. And you're going to find out when yeah. you watch it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, okay, Alex, what's what's the next film you want to talk about? Um, so many. No, <laughs> uh, I would. I, I don't think either of you guys saw CryptoZoo, did you? No. No, I um, I almost did, and then I just didn't have time. So. It's a good one to talk about because I didn't love it, but I um appreciate it. But I, since you didn't see it, we'll save it for another conversation. It's an animated um, film, correct? Yeah. Uh, yes. From um, yeah, we can talk about it another time. <laughs> um. Uh, I would love to talk about documentaries because I saw so many of them, but um, uh, the one of them that really intrigued me was The Most Beautiful Boy in the World. Did either of you guys see this? No. Nope. Oh, it's... um. Oh, man, and I have to look up the information real quickly. Uh, it's about this Swedish guy who was cast in... Um, I forget which film. Uh, Beautiful Boy? Ben is back? Um, <laughs> one no, of those? No, 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 no. <laughs> That's a joke for nine people. <laughs> uh, no, he was cast in um, Visconti's Death in Venice in 1971. That was my second guess. Exactly. I knew Visconti. you would know that. Yeah. And uh, he, he, he was casting, quote unquote, the most beautiful boy in the world for this particular story, which the film gets into, like, what is Visconti really getting at here? And, and turns out Visconti's and his crew were very interested in this boy for other reasons. But... um. The, the the film actually focuses on essentially the weight of what it's like to be called the most beautiful boy in the world. And he ran with this for about like a decade after the film came out. And um, one of the coolest reveals, and you know, you would know this if you know who he is, but uh, one of the coolest reveals in the film is that he, he basically, a lot of the hairstyles in anime and manga in Japan in the 1970s and 80s came from this one kid because he was a huge, like beloved by everyone in Japan after this film and he went and made commercials in japan and all these things and then the other cool reveals he is one of the old guys in um midsummer is he plays one of the guys <laughs> who gets uh, thrown off a cliff and um so, so the, guy off, the guy of the leg uh yeah i think so um 
And so the film is essentially this really uh, melodic and sort of like dreamy, but also heavyweight look at how horribly, like how it can mess up your mind when you go around being called and thinking that you're the most beautiful boy in the world to the point where the guy admits he's like, from the day I went in that casting room, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just told I was the most beautiful boy in the world. He was like some shy kid and went around dealing with this for the rest of his life. And, and I mean, I, this is me saying this. I think people would disagree, but that it's it's like really strong proof that um, attraction can be or like your your beauty can be a really dangerous and, and harmful thing. As much as we love to um, glorify beauty, this is an example of it being really bad for someone. And that he, you know, again, he, he was just naturally beauty and just it like ruined him. So half of the film is spent in his older years. He's now this like 60 year old Swedish dude who um, is just kind of like dealing with mental health issues and all kinds of problems while looking back on kind of his his like literally his first day he went into the casting room and then the years of of attention and, and um, obsession that came following that moment and just how it affected him. And it's, it is exactly what I've said it is. It's not like it has some tricky filmmaking that does other things, but it is a really um, lovely portrayal of exactly that story of what it's like to be the most beautiful boy in the world and, and how it affects you. And I, and I don't know, I, I, um, I think it's a very, it's one of these films that makes you think a lot about things and it makes you wonder whether or not what's good or bad or like the typical thing where you're like, is, is it us? Are we the bad guys? Like, are we the bad guys for loving this, you know, beautiful kid? Are we the bad guys for taking some young actress and saying she's so gorgeous. She, she deserves to be in the next film. Are we the ones really responsible for this, this person? You know, that's the kind of stuff that this film brings to the, the forefront. All right. It's good. I love, I love the like, si- like I'll talk and there'll just be like silence, and I'm like, oh my god, did you guys, did you guys hate this movie? What's going on? No, the problem is you saw, you know, I know 50 I know. movies, and <laughs> the, the chances of our having seen it is, is pretty low. I just had a Mr. Bean-like situation where my headphones fell off, and I was bobbling them in my hands, and then I spilled a paint can, and so I just wasn't paying attention to what you were saying. Yeah, but that's um, but... more interesting than what I just said. <laughs> Uh, but no, no, I, no. I I hear what you're saying, and I do think it sounds interesting. I just haven't seen it, so I don't have much to add. But no, it does sound like an interesting documentary. Um, all right, let's uh, let's move on to one last one. Then I then guys, I made a game for you, so stay no. tuned. <laughs> but um, here we go. The last one I wanted to mention was well, Nick Cage um, had an appearance at the Sundance Film Festival, so I was like, I guess I got to see this movie, um, Prisoner of the Ghostland. Did anyone else see this movie? Yes, Prisoners. There's more than one. Oh, Prisoners. Sorry, what what was I thinking? I I just typed it wrong. But of course, it's more than one Prisoner. There's a whole Ghostland. It would be weird if there's just one. Um, this film is from director uh, Sion Sono. Um, it is about Nick Cage being this notorious criminal who is tasked. Um, under the threat of bombs attached to many parts of his body, including his testicles, to rescue an abducted girl who's disappeared to some other location. I feel like that's the most sane way to explain what's going on in this film. Um, but it does give Nick Cage a chance to be the lead in a big gonzo action thriller film. Um, I will say, in the realm of giant Nick Cage gonzo movies I've seen in the past few years, I certainly liked Mandy and The Color of Space more, but... There was fun to be had in a film that involves Nick Cage opening the film, screaming in a bank about everyone giving their their money, and then he gets the next time we see him, he's like stripped down and being threatened with bombs attached to his testicles. Uh, David, yeah, he's wearing like sumo underwear. 
Yeah, sumo underwear. David, you, you seem to have expressed a lot of enthusiasm. Did you like Prisoners of the Ghostland? I had so much fun with with this movie. Um, uh, yeah, as you hinted at, it belongs to the micro subgenre of prisoner gets released on the condition of going on a suicide mission movies, uh-huh. which is a, yeah. a type of movie that I like. Um, uh, it has a lot of, uh, um, I don't know, I guess horror sci-fi type of, or fantasy type of, uh, stuff going on, but it's also, it's a Western, but it's also a samurai movie. It takes the, mm-hmm. the town that where, where he robs the bank at the beginning is a modern town. Like it has that people drive new cars and the bank is like a new, uh, you know, a new building, but it, all the building facades look like the old West, except the town is called Samurai Town. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also so it's run by a guy called the governor played by bill mosley but then he has a right hand man who's a samurai uh, and then when we get into the actual ghost land it, it itself uh we you didn't mention the, the the woman who he's supposed to go uh rescue or retrieve depending on whose point of view you're you're uh, uh looking at it from is played by sophia butella um mm-hmm. uh yeah the, it, this just seems like a, a celebration of cinema it seems like uh uh uh, oh, you're going to let me make a movie? Well, I'm going to, every three seconds, put something crazy or pretty or weird or beautiful uh, in, in the movie. Um, it, it has a slow-mo samurai sword fight set to the song Time in a Bottle by Jim Croce. Which is pretty <laughs> wonderful, I uh, agree. A, yeah. a highlight of the movie. It also, uh, this is a, a, another, like, pet uh, uh theme or not theme but the just something that speaks to me uh, that is that is up my alley um i i feel like over the past 20 years movies since the 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 the, the advent of new digital intermediate technology movies are hyper color timed and not just even just shot by shot like within within frames you know this part of the of the of the frame is this color this is why we get you know 10 15 years ago there's a lot of talk about why is every movie orange and blue and mm-hmm. th- that's why because they they have the ability to go in after the fact and um and and tweak uh uh frames prisoners of the ghostland is a movie that felt kind of like a throwback to me in that it's a very very colorful movie but it's colorful because they're using practical colorful yeah. lights and the production design is very colorful. The actual movie itself is not overly uh, uh, color timed. It, it, it looks, I don't know if it was shot on film, but it kind of has that more organic old, old time uh, by old time here. I mean, nineties, nineties uh, uh, look. <laughs> the contrasts are also going out of their way because the ghost land is so it, it's Mad Max universe, basically like mm-hmm. it's so drab and, and washed out and everything. So you can't help but be you know, impressed or at least acknowledge the difference when they get back to Samurai Town or any other location that's not, you know, drab, crazy land of ghost land with mannequins and all kinds of weirdness going up. Yeah, I really loved it. But I, um, I, I guess, like, because I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying as far as, like, you know, there's a lot of, like, let's do this um, thought to kind of putting everything into this movie i i guess it's it's not there's a lack of excitement in the middle but the middle certainly feels like there's a lot of this before we get back to the other stuff that becomes more entertaining without feeling like i needed i needed this to earn these moments at the end here at the same time it feel it does feel like a well nick cage does a lot of this kind of stuff now but at least this is in the upper realm of we have budget and we have the can-do attitude to make something special out of this so like i appreciate that quite a bit I felt like it was – you guys said it perfectly already, but I felt like it's great classic, like, 
90s, 80s kind of filmmaking that we don't see anymore. I mean, it is... This filmmaker has been doing this for such a long time that, that yeah, it's fine. Like, that's I, yeah, what, I believe this, that's is, what he this does. is This is C. Soto's first yeah. primarily English-language film. That's, that's the but he's been making films yeah. since the 80s anyway, right? Or even, yeah, he's been, yeah he's, been, he's a prolific filmmaker, but this is his first, like... Like, it, I'm it making, wasn't... Yeah. It wasn't that I thought, oh, he's he's progressed into something new. It was like, oh, he's making what what he's been doing for all the time, and that's why it rocks so much. Is because it is like we don't see these giant colorful sets like this anymore in like yeah. ridiculous musical numbers, and it's fun in that way. It's so it mm-hmm. it's it's good to harken back to that kind of like ridiculousness, but also absurd cinematic fun. Because why not? Like why not throw everything into it? Speaking of his prolificness, just uh, in the intro to the movie, the the programmer pointed out that or described this as Sionsono's first English language film. There's still a lot of Japanese in the movie, but yeah. uh, uh, parts <laughs> that are uh, are in English. But also pointed out that he had intended to make it in in the U.S. with Nicolas Cage, and then Sionsono had a heart attack and couldn't travel, and Nicolas Cage said, "Well, I'll come to you, and we'll make the movie there." See, interesting. What he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Which I found that sorry I found that weird in the intro because I was like I wanted to know more about what he meant by he was making a very Japanese movie in Japan now is even more Japanese and I was like wait what but then his explanation about the way it brings east and west together really actually felt like they achieved that and I was like how do we achieve that more yeah <laughs> like that was a cool mix it's because it's not fully Japanese but it is but it's also got the what like western sensibilities to it that's cool that's cool it's you, you achieve that more by having a low budget and no studio to tell you what to do that's how you achieve that yeah and a filmmaker who's like willing to to m- m- like throw things together and and also just throw everything at the wall <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's how it is uh david what's the what's the last one we want to mention here? oh i thought i already did all mine oh <laughs> no you're right you're right you're right no um, is there one more? uh yeah there is one more i wanted to mention it's not um i'm not gonna I will take a second to say I really love Judas and the Black Messiah, but that's a major studio movie. Yeah, that's our review next week, so uh, I don't need to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I, uh, I really liked it. Uh, so the other one I'll point out is uh, I watched a, t- a, a fair amount of horror or horror-tinged things uh, at Sundance this year and didn't talk about them any. Of them. Maybe my favorite uh, horror movie that I watched was Prado Bailey Bond's Censor. Uh, which take pl- takes place in in uh, in the UK in the 1980s during the whole sort of video nasties uh, uh, controversy scare scandal craze whatever and um, the uh, the lead actress whose name is Niam something um, it, it's because uh, I had to look this up because it's a very like it's, it's like Scottish it's a Niev Alger. It's a it's a V sound you make, even though it's an okay. M and an H. That's even though it looks like the secret of Nim, it's yeah, Niev um, yeah. Alger. Uh, okay, so that's Scottish. Okay. Um, uh, anyway, well, she plays a censor uh, working for the government. Uh, her job all day is to watch uh, potential video nasties. Uh, these low budget um, uh, graphic, Irish. Shocking, sorry, she's oh, she's Irish, Irish. not okay. Scottish. Yeah, um, shocking uh, horror films um and decide what needs to be caught or if they're going to be banned outright but then she views one of these movies that uh bears a striking resemblance to a repressed memory from her childhood and sort of goes down the rabbit hole of trying to seek out this reclusive director who made this movie and the star of the movie who she thinks may or may not be her long-lost sister um and and uh, she starts having nightmares, and as the movie goes on, it intentionally becomes more and more difficult to tell whether what we're watching is happening to the character or is happening in her in her nightmares. Um, 
the movie is it's a horror movie it's very gory in the sense of these video the way that these video nasties are but i think kind of cleverly on the movie's part the horror comes more from this existential uh um fear of of not knowing what's going on the actual gore in the movie in the movie itself and in the movies that she watches is pretty fakey and corny looking it, mm-hmm. you know it's it, it's funny to by think today's anyone, standards yeah for sure yeah it's funny to think that anyone was like scandalized by this like clearly a mannequin with a head missing and like bright bright red blood <laughs> is not the actual color of almost orangish uh blood uh there's a certain sense of humor to the uh the gore in the movie but um uh it actually does work as a horror movie on another level i really liked it so i started this after coda and it was late and i fell asleep so i did not finish it <laughs> i wasn't i wasn't big on what i was seeing in the in like i i liked the like the idea of what this was doing but something about it was just it wasn't intriguing me enough to be like i need to like just keep myself awake despite being tired that said i could tell that the the lead performance was solid i could tell there's a lot of effort being there as far mm-hmm. as like this recollection she was had or like the relationship she was created connecting between the stuff that she was viewing and her own past like that stuff was intriguing to me so ideally if i saw the whole thing and was you know more awake i would have liked it i just i don't have too much of an opinion but i do think that there's an intriguing story there so i liked it up until the end and that's all I'll oh. say. <laughs> for i i don't know maybe i just wanted more out of it but i don't want to spoil it because it's too early on to talk about the end yeah. but yeah sure all right well that's censor um alex what's the last thing you want to talk about here Oh, man, I have 33 others to go through. <laughs> you ready? We're going to have to keep this going for another 12 hours here. No, I'm kidding. Um, you, you can create, you can do that on the podcast you never update. You can do that. You can do the rest of it. Yeah, well, we're right. We haven't recorded that in a long time. Actually, one of the things I told myself was like, oh, thank God I have your podcast because I won't do one of my own. <laughs> but, okay. No, the only other one I think, uh, well, I mean, honestly, I could talk about everything. In, in, in the Earth, the... Um, uh, uh, is also good but not great and i would like to talk about it but i don't think either of you guys saw it um, i did see it in the earth oh, okay. uh, and i'll point out um censor uh stars or has a uh, an appearance from the actor michael smiley whom yeah. i know from free fire which is directed by ben wheatley who made it in the earth boom <laughs> there's your um, six yeah. degrees two three degrees whatever he's uh, also it, he's also in the show spaced uh, which was yeah. from Edgar Wright. so oh uh, yeah <laughs> Um, the last one I'll mention is Mass, just because um, mm-hmm. I think it's a big one coming out of the festival, and, and, and people will be like, "Oh, did any of you guys see this? Did you? Did either of you guys see Mass?" Didn't get a chance to. Okay, um, it's very. It's like the the even though it's not based on a play, it's kind of like the perfect version of a play where it's like um, it all takes place in these two uh, parents meet at a church. And um, they sit down in a room, and, and 60 minutes of the film is them arguing in this room. And the the concept, which is, of course, very timely and, and um, very American, so to say, is that it's uh, two parents of um, kids who were involved in a school shooting. And I can I guess I can kind of re- say is that one of the parents is clearly the parents of the shooter, and one of the parents, uh, the, clearly the parents of a victim. And essentially, they're sitting down and having this big conversation. And it's um, the film I have a little bit of problems with. Like, there's there's the bookends on both sides are both a little bit too long. And, you know, it would have worked better if it just kind of, like, ended after they had this beat in the in the big argument. 
But uh, the the main chunk of it where they're arguing is just like phenomenally well put together. Not only the argument itself, which is so emotionally driven between them arguing, but the performances between them and Dowd being one of them who stands out. Um, and um, Jason Isaacs is also one of them in there. And these two sets of parents just just like because it's also like you, you can tell they're all they just want to eat each other and just rip each other apart but they can't so then they're trying to have an, an honest emotional discussion between them and they're also trying to get to the bottom of things and sort of figure out why this why that you know our son this that and blah 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 and um it's just really it's been getting praise because of that core of it you know regardless of what the films you know can do on both sides of this conversation is whatever but that I think it'll come out of the festival with a lot of attention for that reason. And it's also very um, brings a perspective to this conversation that we we all think about, but we're never really willing to address, which is that even the parents of the kid who ended up being the shooter have emotions and feelings, too. And they're not worthy of the attacks they're getting, but also how were they involved and what really happened and what's the honest story about their involvement and blah, blah, blah. And it's it's just a really fascinating film in that way to get into that discussion. And I think like um, it's not my favorite, but uh, but the praise is worthwhile that it's been getting so far. I'm curious because it seemed like that was one with Coda that was going to be like one of the big winners at the festival. And I don't. It, it felt like that was that for like a day and a half, and then that kind of died down. So I was just, and well, but it, I, when, it, I'm not saying it's bad or like everyone. No, no, wrong. no. I'm just I know, curious because it it felt like the buzz was just as strong for that movie as it was for the other one that did get like a bunch of awards and everything. So I'm just curious I, if they. I think it got changed. a jury award, maybe for something, but it, it's more of like, it's the kind of thing like loose where you're just so like, um, titillated by the, the 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 what you're watching that you can't help but speak about it. You're like, wow, this film really messed me up, you know. But mm-hmm. as for the film, I think it's it's not particularly it's it, it, it's one of those things that people were saying also that um, it would make a great play, but that doesn't mean it's not a good film. But I'm like, yeah, well, that also means that it's not particularly the being a film doesn't particularly add anything to it, and that it could work both just as well as a play and as a film and that's a whole other discussion for a whole other podcast but like that idea i think is kind of why that when people caught up with it they're like eh, yeah okay i really like the performances and the conversation but as a film it's not necessarily like the best film of the festival fair i think that's what happened i think once people were starting to watch it that's my experience with it i was like wow i'm really shook by this part of it but i don't think it's like the top of the fest okay well thanks for filling us in anyway on mass yeah because i think it's going to be a great conversation starter for a hundred different reasons, one of them being that like um, the what they bring up in both sides, you're like, wow, okay, I have to think about this. You know, you can't forget that everyone has a family, or did, or was. You know, I don't know. got it. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. All right, well, that's uh, that's been a, a a big recap of a lot of films that we saw during Sundance, and I thank you both for uh, humoring me and talking about your experience <laughs> with the films. Um, before we go, I do want to say that it is, um, it's time for another thing that we do here. It's, it's time for, uh, it's time for games. Guys, I couldn't resist making a game this week because I wanted to, it felt good. Um, it is called Sundance Taglines. I'm going to read the tagline from a famous Sundance movie. And you have to tell me what the movie is. If you feel, you know, the answer, shout out your name and then the movie. Make sense? Yep. Ready for this? Here we go. Here's the first one. 
In love and life, one big night can change everything. This is a... Most of these are 90s movies. Alex, <laughs> I feel like before sunset, but that, or before sunrise, but I don't think so. Incorrect. I'll give you a hint. The title is in the tagline. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> in love and life, one big night can change everything. Oh, David. David? Big night? Big night is the correct answer. I don't even know this film. <laughs> That's Stanley Tucci's... <laughs> Stanley Tucci's wonderful uh, big, restaurant movie. Big night, huh? Okay. Him I'll and Tony Shalhoub. Check it out. <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of Sundance films that have the big night moment in them. Like I just think everyone knows, everyone knows Stanley Tucci's movie Big Night. That's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here we go. A very funny look at over-the-counter culture. Oh, I thought this nice. was one of the easy ones. All right. <laughs> okay, here's the other tagline that I know offhand. Just because they serve you doesn't mean they like you. David. Alex. David. Clerks? It is clerks, yes. All right. Here's the next one. There's two here, because I wasn't sure how easy this would be. Breaking up is hard. That's, that's really bland. Here's the, here's the other tagline, just because that's, that's enough. Dead in the heart of Texas. Wow. Alex, this sounds like... Paris, Texas, but I don't think that played it Sunday. No, yeah. I might have played it Sundays, but I don't recall death being a huge part of it. No, I know, but I was just saying, hmm. <laughs> it is the debut film of two very acclaimed filmmakers. Um, Alex, is it Blood Simple? It is Blood Simple. Yeah, that's, but that's like Sundance 1977 or something, right? When is that? <laughs> 84. <laughs> That was before I was even born, man. No, I'm kidding. This, Sundance didn't exist till I started going. Come on. <laughs> Here's the next one. Killing a priest on a Sunday. That'll be a good one. David. David? Calvary. It is Calvary. Mm. I know you're a fan of that. Yeah, big fan. <laughs> Here's the next one. The road to greatness can take you to the edge. Man, oh, man. This is a 2010s film. The road to greatness. David. David. This must be the place? Incorrect. That's a fun answer. <laughs> Was that even place. a Sundance movie, though? I don't think so. It might have been. I wouldn't be surprised. The Road to Greatness can take you to the edge. It features an award-winning performance. <laughs> that narrows it down, really. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> uh, how else do I narrow this? Uh, it involves music. Like heavily as a theme slash plot. Alex, aspect. is it yeah. Sing Sing Street? It's not Sing Street. It is Whiplash. Oh, really? <laughs> to the edge, road man. To, but there's no roads in Whiplash, man. What is this? Yeah, sure. Miles <laughs> Miles Teller drives on a road and crashes his car. Yeah, crashes car. car. By the way, uh, so this must be the place premiered at Cannes in 2011, but did play Sundance 2012 in the spotlight section. Mm. Well, there we go. That is the Sean Penn movie, right? That's what I'm. Yeah, yeah. About. Okay, good. <laughs> because he has the big hair and the the makeup and everything. But for some for some reason, I gathered that it was a music related movie. Well, you're yeah, you're on the right track. Yeah. Here's the next one. There's two taglines here, just in case it's not easy enough. Let's go to work. The other is every dog has his day. David. David. Reservoir Dogs. It's Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. 
These taglines out of context are so strange. Let's go to work. I'm like, how would that, how would that work for That's because you're like, like, it works. But... Yeah. yeah. No, Lawrence Dirty Gay's like, let's go to work. Yeah. Like, here's a, this one's. <laughs> I just wanted to include this to see if it would get here. Love is a puzzle. These are the pieces. I want, Alex, I want to say puzzle, but I know it's not puzzle. <laughs> it's not puzzle. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is an acclaimed three name director. Um, on the directing this movie. Oh, is it um Alex? Is it Amoros Peros or? Incorrect. Hmm. Trying to think of a other... three named. A three named director. I assume he'd have multiple films. Bondi Curtis so Hall. His <laughs> <laughs> last name. I don't think that counts. <laughs> uh, he's a white director. He he's become a weird journeyman in in later years following his debut film oh 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 is this uh all the real girls it is all the real girls from david mm. gordon green you're correct mm. <laughs> all right here's the next one let's see how you get this one he didn't come looking for trouble but trouble came looking for him there's another debut film from a well-known action director is it hobo with a shotgun it is not hobo with a shotgun <laughs> <laughs> too bad <laughs> I don't. it features excessive weaponry <laughs> it's known it's very much known for its low budget oh is it El Mariachi it is El Mariachi yes uh... oh but I didn't say David so it doesn't count you're fine you're alright I'll, just, I'll, de- I'll deduct it from your overall life score. I like, hope with a shotgun uh, was a Sundance for me. That was just a guess, but uh, did for me. It was. I wasn't because I knew like the short premiered with Grindhouse, obviously, and then I wasn't sure if like the feature debut. That seems like a South by Southwest thing of anything. But okay. <laughs> oh, I was there. I was there at the midnight premiere, yeah. man. I was there. Yeah. Canada Pride. Uh, all right. This one's a detective story. Uh, David. David. Brick. It's Brick. Yes. Running away with this, David. Now he's got to catch up here. Nah, man, I'm bad at your games. I'm a... <laughs> I can never remember. I'm like, it's, it's... best it's friends, only... best friends, social trends, and occasional murder. Alex, this sounds like Thoroughbreds. You're on the right. It's not, but you're on the right track as far as the kind of movie it is. I was surprised this is a Sundance film. Yeah, it's from the late '80s. Hmm. It is very much a satire. Oh, is it? Uh, is it less than zero? It's not less than zero. Still on the right track, ish. Hmm. It fe- it's uh, hmm, how do I say this? It features multiple characters with the same name, which is the title of the film. <laughs> Okay, I'll just give it. It's Heather's. Heather's oh, is okay. That's a Sundance film, really? I, I was. I saw that. Too. I was like, that's a Sundance movie. All right. Less than Zero was not a Sundance movie, by the way. I figured it wasn't, but I was still gonna give it to you <laughs> as far as credit. <laughs> uh, based on an actual lie. Oh, I know this. Yeah, I feel like it's. This is a recent movie. Alex, is it the, like the imposter or no? More recent. Mm, some would say famously snubbed at, by the Oscars. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I know this. Why is this? Yeah, I, a... I remember this tackle. <laughs> it's about family. It's about um, one particular family. Is, no, Little Miss Sunshine's not too recent. It's about one particular family member in this family. Although it's an ensemble film. It's set in China. <laughs> oh, The Farewell. The Farewell is oh. the correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> That's why we're all like, we know it, come on. <laughs> Isn't that Here's not, does that not open the film with that lie too or somewhere? There's somewhere in it, this line? I'm pretty sure that's like the opening thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think Eric. Here's the next one. A few more. He's quite engaging. She's otherwise engaged. This is like half of every Sundance film ever. <laughs> <laughs> there are more obvious ones I didn't want to read, but it is it is a famous British film. Is it Four 90s. Weddings and a Funeral? It is Four Weddings and a Funeral. Oh, wow. Great. Here we go. Here's the next one. 250,000 miles from home, the hardest thing to face is yourself. 250,000? Oh, David. David. Moon? Moon is the correct answer. Damn, man. That's... That, that definitely is 250,000 miles. <laughs> I was like, where on earth is there 250,000 miles? <laughs> a family on the verge of a breakdown. Uh, Alex, is this not Little Miss Sunshine? <laughs> that is Little Miss Sunshine. Okay. <laughs> I was hoping you'd get it. <laughs> Here's the last one. Everything you've heard is true. Uh, Alex, Blair Witch Project? It is the Blair Witch Project. Look at you coming on strong at the end. Okay. <laughs> That's like a famous one. It's like a, it's like a... That was literally the marketing was like, everything from Sundance you've heard is true. And you're like, oh, well, it's a, it's a good thing you remembered it for this all important podcast game. So good job. <laughs> what do I win? <laughs> Nothing. I didn't even win. I don't... No, you didn't. David won. Good job, David. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. That's how you play Sundance taglines. Thank you guys for participating in that game. With that said, though, that is going to bring us to the end of this week's episode. So you can find more of my work at... My personal blog, thecodeseek.com, everything I do ends up over there. I'm also at Wise of Blue, writing blue reviews. I actually coupled a couple of new criterions from Raman Baharani uh, this week. And I'm also on uh, we, Live, we Live Entertainment, of course, and on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. Uh, David Bax, where can people find more of you online? Uh, BattleshipPretension.com is where you find uh, all of my Sundance reviews, uh, as, as well as a podcast, my other reviews. Uh, the podcast in which I wrap up uh, Sundance with Mashable's Angie Han uh, is going up tonight so it's probably up by the time you're hearing this i'm guessing um and you can if you disagree with me you can email me at uh david at battleship pretension.com oh i'm starting to write right now oh I, <laughs> <laughs> and i'm on twitter at david pretension all right alex billington where can people find more of you online uh as always first showing.net and twitter at first showing and letterbox slash first showing <laughs> anywhere anywhere on the internet slash first showing all right you can find all the other episodes of Out Now Third Name on iTunes, Audioboom, Spotify, and Stitcher. Feel free to email us at outnowpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook.com slash outnowpodcast, Twitter.com slash underscore podcast, and Instagram.com slash underscore podcast as well. David, Alex, thank you both for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Glad to have you guys on as always. Look forward to having you on again. But that's going to do it for our Sundance episode. That said, David, you did mention Judas and the Black Messiah. That is next week's episode, so stay tuned for that. But until next time, so long and goodbye.